Swooping in from Campbelltown, it's the Rugby League Cemetery. This is the Rugby League Cemetery. Good to have you with us once again uh, as we, we plough through the spare time that lockdown provides us uh, by going back to 1991 this time, listeners. Tuesday, the 27th of August, 1991, Western Suburbs, 19, Canterbury, 14, in front of 17,022 at Parramatta Stadium. Now, I hear what you're thinking. Hang on. Did he say Tuesday, the 27th of August, 1991? I did, my very good friends. Tuesday, it was a Tuesday night game between West and Canterbury, the fifth place playoff. Now, Gazzy, I don't know about you, um, but I thought this was a fantastic game, made even more fantastic by the bizarre novelty of the fifth place playoff, which I would love to see come back, which will never come back, but which uh, which I found absolutely thrilling. Absolutely, mate. Wonderful game. This is the sort of thing that sports science has killed dead and um, yes. it deserves to sort of be locked up and hanged. Uh, bring back the death penalty for whoever brought in sports science and wrecked the concepts of midweek games. Uh, the winner of this game was fighting for the right to play the almighty and conquering Canberra Raiders of the early 90s off a couple of days' sleep. Yeah, <laughs> that's, that's yeah, yeah. yeah. Goal. <laughs> so just, just to be clear what has happened here, Wests and Canterbury have finished level on points on the table in fifth and sixth position, and instead of just taking the one with the better points difference, mm. they they play them off against each other uh, for the right, as you say, to play against Canterbury uh, to play against Canberra in in an eliminator in week one of the finals. <laughs> now Wests played <laughs> Wests played on the Saturday uh, against uh, against Brisbane, I think it was, and lost. Uh, Canterbury played on the Sunday against Cronulla and had a really tough win over Cronulla on Sunday afternoon. And about 52 hours later, are playing against Wests in a sudden death match. Yeah, that's a concept, isn't it? That's not a bad week for West. Like, I mean, having to play sort of the Broncos of the uh, early 90s and then sort of having to play Canberra a week later, but splicing in Terry Lamb and Ewan McGrady in the middle. is And you know, it's quite a concept to be getting around. <laughs> <It's> <laughs> in terms of being at peak by the Canberra game, I think you're setting yourselves up to be in top physical condition and ready to rock. By that, yeah, that, that I haven't played game. two really, really hard games by the time you yeah. get to the Raiders um, just to, to, to get the right to play them. Uh, yeah, that's right. It's it, it's extraordinary. It's extraordinary that this ever existed. At one point during the second half, Bill Anderson says, they, they start to, because the, the game obviously is very close. And at one point in the second half, they start speculating about the possibility of extra time and how there'll be 10 minutes either, either way. And Bill Anderson says, and if we still don't have a result after all that, we'll come back on Thursday. <laughs> Can you oh, imagine? Like, yeah. Did this ever happen? I need to find out if this ever happened, if they ever had to have a playoff, a fifth place playoff replay on a Thursday night. <laughs> 
the only thing I can think of is that mad Manly run where Manly kept having to play, like got to the grand final via like multiple midweek games and stuff via draws. Yeah, 78. Um, they yeah, had to go through yeah, the all the replays. That's right. Yeah, so they kept drawing games and having to replay them in the middle. It's not quite the same, but it's um that was I think very they good. Played, I think they played six games to get mm. to the grand final. Yeah. Yeah. And this this is quite uh, one of, one of the really good things about this is it's, it opens up one of our, my favourite tropes. Now we're not from the fifth place era, but we're from an era where you would often teams would be playing when someone had a week off, and yeah. everyone has to speculate about how much the team with the week off will be loving seeing how hard the game is yeah. and really baying for it to go to extra time. And that comes out in this one. I oh, won't the Raiders be loving this? And you can never have a game no. uh, ever, even now, where if so, you know if, if someone's gone straight to the prelim, you have to spend the whole week two game talking about how much the team of the week off loving them bashing each other up. <laughs> That's right. The funny thing about this is that Canterbury had the better points difference, right? And and under a, under the, the, the way we do it now, they would have just gone through. But their points difference was plus 50 and West's mm. was plus 48. Oh, so yeah. it would have like, like it would have been if under the rules that we play now, fifth place would have been decided by a goal kick on the last yeah. day of the season. Um, and instead, they, yeah, it would have been very exciting and kind of thrilling because you know yeah. some silly consolation try that Cronulla might have scored late in the game would have bundled yeah. Canterbury out of the finals. Um, but instead, we have something even more exciting, which is this game. It was a cracker, wasn't it? It was a real sudden death, tough knife fight. It was awesome. Yeah, it was. I, I suppose if I was to um, surmise the game, I think West had a really strong pack and a really grinding sort of game style. They had just really dominated possession and territory with Jason Taylor, really a masterclass of a kicking performance and controlling his team. Uh, they reminded me a lot of Paul Gallon's Cronulla era, that gritty, oh, yeah. hard team. Yep. They wouldn't go away. They probably lacked a little bit of strike compared to their opposition. And they just like... T- took the possession, took the territory, gave nothing away and ground out the game really well. And whereas the Dogs, what was really enjoyable is they were doing that and the Dogs had two really class players in Lamb and McGrady and they just keep um, keeping themselves in it, playing off the back foot through using this this class they've got. They'd sort of kick when they were in trouble, then McGrady would go through some people, Lamb had set some stuff up and it was that real sort of fight between a grinding good, slightly better in the middle team and then a team just that had enough strike to play anyone and stay in the contest. Would you agree with that? No, I would. And, and Canterbury, um, you, you see that. I'll I give you a good example of, of why that's true. Uh, Wests in 1991, in their 22 regular season games, scored 359 points and conceded 311. Um, Canterbury, 424 points, scored 374 conceded. So you've got one fairly dour, tough side who weren't giving anything away and were getting home. They won a lot of games, 8-6 mm-hmm. and that, that sort of thing. And then Canterbury, who were really wow. had a lot of strike and scored a lot of points. Which raises the question. Now, I have to ask you, so this was yeah. not the Dogs of War side. Would you say that this oh, is I, perhaps a hashtag entertainment? I, I think if we're going to uh, – if we have to acknowledge, and listeners – of this podcast will know that there are only ever two types of Canterbury Bulldogs side. They have to either be the dogs of war, stodgy and tough, or bringing back the entertainers and a lot of footage of Steve Gearan. I think this is definitely a Steve Gearan side. Yeah. Have they ever thought about both, like combining and being quite oh. tough and um, flary? Because that would be a pretty – like that's not a bad model. It's a, it's a model for success, yeah. isn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, no, but no, it's, this is an entertainer's bulldog side. I think that's right. Um, but it is. It's a really tough game. It's it's four two at half time. 
Um, and then West get out to a 15-8 lead in the second half uh, and Canterbury get back to within a point and it's only a late try for West that gets them uh, gets them home for good. And even in the last minute, Canterbury have a chance to win it. Like, it's it's a really... It, it, it's a contest all the way to the finish line. Uh, and there's great tension about it, you know. There's all the way through, there's a real... There's a lot of tension and a lot of sense of jeopardy that that something could go wrong and it costs you your season. It's a, it's a classic knockout game. Yeah, that's exactly right because it's like we said, I think West are on top, but they're, they're never quite got enough to get to kick away. And you know Canterbury, like, um, you know with the players they had that it was only going to be click, click, and, and all of a sudden it could have gone. They just stayed in the fight enough that mm. if any given time, if someone just slipped over or someone went through at the right moment, they could have gone bang, bang and ended up stealing. It would have been a steal, I think, if they won, but they yeah. could have done it because they were just hanging close enough, close enough, getting late in the game. And and fifteen eight in that era is a lot bigger than it is now. Um, games weren't – that would often sort of be – you know, at that point, you'd sort of go, it's probably lights out because there wasn't as many tries a lot of the time and particularly between good sides. And yeah. when you're in a, a, a closer game, top and bottom of the ladder maybe. So that was quite, they could have easily fallen off there, but they just, it was a fantastic game. And both sides, I think you'd have to go away relatively happy with how your side put in off a couple of days rest. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, and the reason we the reason we chose to, to watch this game was mostly about Wests and the fact that this was their, this was their return um, to the finals after a really long time, um, and and under the in their in their first year under Warren Ryan, I, I want to share with you a bit of West's history, just to put this game in context to to where they had come from to get into this match. Mm. They three straight grand final losses in the sixties, sixty one, sixty two, sixty three. They then made the finals. They only made the finals five more times prior to nineteen ninety one. So between 63 and 91, they made the finals five times. Their last appearance had been in 82. They obviously had a decent run under Roy Masters where they made the preliminary final and that sort of thing. Last last appearance in the finals was 82. Now, listen, this is, this is what they did from 1983 to 1990. 14th in 83, wooden spoon. 13th in 84, wooden spoon. 12th in 85. That's the high watermark of their achievement during the 80s. Uh, 12th in 85, 12th in 86, 13th, wooden spoon in 87, 16th, wooden spoon in 88, 14th in 89. Yeah, handy. Oh, and, um, oh, and, handy. Thir- and 13th in 1990. Yeah. God, that reads a lot like following Newcastle. But like, isn't it? <laughs> well, well, it does a little bit. But, but yeah. so, so they've won four wooden yeah. spoons in, what, nine years, yep. um, eight years. Yeah. Yeah, and, and, and in, in in that, there's a lot of chaos going on. You know, they basically had to go to the high court to stay in the competition uh, yeah. in the 1980s. So they literally had to go to the high court. Uh, they're running fates to keep their to keep their team in the comp um, very close. There's, there's been a move as well, you know. Um, yeah. It's mentioned in this game that Trevor Cogger is the last surviving Lidcombe player. Like that's – so, you know, there's players playing in this game that played at a totally different sort of – you know, Lidcombe isn't all that close to Campbelltown. In, 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 like, it's it, there's players in this game that played for sort of a different version of the Magpies, if you will. Yeah, that's you know? right. Like, so it's it's a, it's a move. It's a. I know it sounds like not a big move when we talk about Cronulla going to Brisbane and all this stuff, but it it, it was a a shift in the club, and that's um. There's a lot of chaos going on, and the results aren't there. And the um, I suppose 
I've already done, as you know, a sort of a, a little history corner at one of our episodes on Warren Ryan before and, and how he's become underrated as a brilliant coach. And I'll tell you what, for all the grand final stuff at the Tigers and the grand finals of the Bulldogs and doing well at Newcastle, this has got to be up there with a masterpiece well, of coaching up there with Graham Murray at the Steelers and all this sort of stuff. Absolutely. Just taking absolutely nothing results-wise and, and crafting it into something that could compete with the best. Like when you when you read through those those results from eighty three to ninety, this is a club, and, and you combine it with the fact that, as you say, they were the, the league had made the decision to pump them out, and they were they had to go through court and they had to dig in and sort of survive. This, this is a club that is clinging on by its fingernails and, and basically is heading out the trap door. Mm. Uh, and the walk turns up in ninety one after three years at Balmain, and. They go into they 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 go into fifth place and into this playoff. Um, it's it's a remarkable achievement. And they they, yeah. they they weren't just. It's easy to forget because we've got a midweek playoff to just remind people that this isn't a top eight system with a playoff. It's a top five system. So the sixteen teams in the comp yep. and they've finished on twenty seven points. They finished one point off coming um, fourth and sort of one if they'd won their last game of the year they would have finished third so they're like fifth out of 16 not like scraping into eighth now where you're actually halfway they're at the top sort of third of the competition or the top quarter of the competition and we're one win away yeah. from being sort of third in a competition that has a, a wonderful Penrith team obviously it has Manly it has Canberra you know the Broncos didn't make finals that's, that good yeah, that's right so it, it's it's a really strong competition and he's taken a side that is right down the junk end every year not competing at the junk end and taken them to the top quarter of the competition which you had to be in to make the finals back then yeah and 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 as a as a mark of how well they went uh, they were second after round sixteen. Mm. They actually yeah. flat. They they limped into the finals a little bit. They only two wins and a draw from their last six, which is what uh, put them into fifth. But like a, a mm. two thirds of the way through the season, they were second place uh, behind yeah. that wonderful Penrith side, um, who are now who are now particularly legendary. Uh, so the it's fans remote. must have been happy. The fans, what? like West fans, oh. can you imagine? We'll, we'll try and hear from some what it must have been like when they were second, like mid-season, yeah. to have come off all this. Um, you know, uh, I remember, it, it seems like a distant memory now, but I mean, even you and I, after all the night spoons, which are nothing that long, we had three or four years of coming down the bottom, and Newcastle were coming in the top four a couple of years ago by like round 10, and we are off our heads. Like the excitement yeah. to be competing and to not even th- really think we were going to win it, but to just go we're in this and we've got a good team and we're going to, we're going to be in the finals and we're going to fight it out was, was huge. So I can only imagine like after everything West had been through and fighting to even be in the comp, you know, and being in court to get there to be coming second at round 16 and, mm. and fighting away, knowing that you were a big chance to play finals football. It must've been incredible. Yeah, absolutely. They actually lost three of their first four, uh, but then won six in a row uh, in the, in the early wow. stages of the season, they had another run of four in a row in June and July, which is what got them up to second place. They beat both of the both of the eventual grand finalists that year. They knocked off Penrith and Canberra during at least once during the regular season, um, and they, they were they were a serious team. They weren't there to make up the numbers. What you say is absolutely right. Making the finals in 1991 is not the same as making the finals now, because the line was a hell of a lot higher, um, and there were a lot of good sides. Uh, for, for, for Canterbury, uh, they had won premierships, of course, in 84, 85, and 88. And they were just they had just come off those those highs a little bit. They'd come seventh in both eighty nine and ninety. Chris Anderson took over from Gus Gould in nineteen ninety. 
And 91 was a bit of a scratchy year. They, they had a couple of little three and four match winning streaks uh, and a few losing streaks. And they just battled away and got themselves into position to, to, to come sixth uh, or to come fifth, in fact, on points difference and get into this playoff. Um, as I say, under the current rules, they'd have just made it. Um, that, that'd have been in. Uh, Ewan McGrady, 14 tries in 1991. Uh, and Jonathan Davis is a fellow they brought over from Wales. He's a Welsh rugby union international, played 37 rugby tests for Wales, moved to rugby league in 1989, and then played 10 tests for Great Britain and nine tests for Wales. He joined Canterbury in May 91. He kind of did the reverse Sturlow, where he came over to the, the New South Wales rugby league at the end of the British season uh, and played the last 14 games of the year and was an absolute dead-eye goal kicker, as I'm sure we will discuss later in this uh in this episode, Canterbury Fulton yeah. only got themselves into this match uh, with a, a tough 26-16 win over Cronulla on the last Sunday of the season to get themselves into into position. Yeah, it, it um, it's a bit in between errors, isn't it? Because it's a little bit before your sort of um, mid nineties Bulldogs that you would think of once they've sort of got um, they, they've still got Terry Lamb, but they've sort of got Dimmick and McCracken and those guys coming through, playing with Darren Britt goes over there, and and Steve Price starts coming through, and all these guys and Paul Mauna and and they it's 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 before that, but it's also after your late eighties like Gould and Warren Ryan yeah. sides. Um, it's I think off you, you mentioned uh, Davis. I think that's um, that was quite common at that time. If you go over the few years around there, you get Ellery Hanley coming out twice, yep. um, and obviously having an impact. And you get uh, a few others. I think a fire came out briefly at one point or another. And there was yeah, he had a couple of stints. Sort of yeah. yeah, so it was quite common um, with his goal kicking. I just like to point out, and now's as good as time as any. I have never seen someone kick the ball that high that in high? All my time of watching rugby league. He kicks the goal kick that is at least another half a goalpost higher than the top of the goalpost when he kicks yeah. it. Like, kicks him dead eye. And you're like, how how has he kicked that? He should have been in the NFL. He would now. He'd be getting a talent scout out to get <laughs> his hang time because he kicks it like – he just kicks it from a normal position, 20 out. And you watch it and you're going, Jesus Christ, it's like a whole half a yeah. goalpost above the flag. And then he does the same kicking for touch. Like, he absolutely hammers them. Yeah, yeah. yeah he? Oh, yeah. He, he kicks one from the sideline late on under real press. Like it's 15-12 yeah. and he puts one over from touch, which yeah. is – above the goalposts oh. when it goes over, like well yeah. above the goalposts yeah. when it goes over, which is yeah. like... Have you ever seen that? No, I'm, I'm glad you brought that up because it was stunning. Jason Taylor, by the way, um, kicked at 76% in 1991, mm. his second year in first grade, 76% is pretty good going off sand. Oh, um, it's very high in 1991, yeah. isn't it? Like it's dead yeah. eye, real dead eye, yeah. Yeah, we'll talk about his kicking mm. later on, but uh, 170 mm. points for him in 1991 in a low-scoring yep. side. The other interesting thing about this game, of course, is that <clears throat> with the walk having gone to uh, Wests, he brought some of his great Canterbury players with him, some of the some of the big parts of that 84-85 side. Uh, Andrew Farrah playing in the centres, uh, the, the, the dummy half and captain, Joe Thomas, uh, and Paul Langmack and David Gillespie in the forwards. Yeah, he did. It's it's funny. It's it's one of those things that you sort of now you'd be quite critical of um, guys that sort of bring in older players from, you know what I mean? Like if they'd been in winning yeah. comps, if we looked at guys now, well, even think of the Dragons at the moment, how much um, Anthony Griffin's getting for bringing all these old Broncos over and stuff. Yeah. But um, it's something that sort of 
does get knocked a little bit. But I think quite clearly at that time with the results they'd had, they probably seemed like they really did need a few hard heads in there. And, and it was probably quite astute to get some guys like that because if you look at who they had and you look at Jason Taylor coming through, who, who quite clearly would have been a huge prospect at that time, um, the way he came onto the scene and everything. It, um, a few tough forwards and, and guys moving in there, Langmack, and, and that it, it makes a really big difference. Yeah, it does. And the other the other funny thing about that, of course, is that we think now about Wests having repeatedly had the guts ripped out of them by bigger clubs, particularly like in the late 70s and then again through the 80s and 90s. And I think you want to talk, I think we'll talk at the end about some of the players that they could have, that they developed and then didn't end up having. But this is an occasion where it's actually them ripping the guts out of someone else, where Canterbury lose yeah. the, the kind of the nucleus of a team that had won uh, three comps during the 80s. So I suppose West fans might have enjoyed that a little bit seeing so someone else's yeah. team kind of being transplanted into yeah. theirs rather than the other way around. Um, yeah. I think the other thing on that is just to note that this would have been a walk feud game and that would have yeah. only been because there's, there's 16 teams in the competition. So this would have been one of 15 feud games where walk had a feud with someone on the other side uh, and had some meat in the game for, for someone quite, he was feuding with. There's quite, quite a lot. When you read about that, some of the players, there's quite a lot of players on both sides of this game who ended up <laughs> having some kind of fallout with the walk. <laughs> Yeah, and the referee. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Rather famously. Yeah, that's right. Um yeah. in fact Paul Langmack the walk. <laughs> so Paul Langmack moved from indeed from Canterbury to, to Wests um to follow the walk. And and they were obviously fairly close. But at the end of ninety four, I think it was, when the walk got sacked, Langmack went out and really publicly backed in the sacking. Um, which I just don't think the walk yeah. would have taken particularly well. Um oh. I doubt he takes it well now. It would be in his book somewhere. <laughs> yeah, I'd imagine so. Has he? Um, written, I don't think he's written a book, The Walk, and it's a shame. Oh, his book be... of feuds. He'd have yeah, it at home. Of, oh, yeah, yeah. No, just yeah, a, just a the, scrapbook um... of feuds, yeah. A couple yeah. of things about uh, <laughs> a couple of things about 91. Uh, Penrith finished on, get this, top of the league on 35 points. Manly next best on 29. So that gives you a bit of an idea what Penrith were like in, in 1991. Uh, North's also on 29, finished third, Canberra 28th, and Western Canterbury together on 27. So it's a very competitive comp, except for Penrith, who were quite a way out in front. Doesn't that have a really nice bit of symmetry to this year where Penrith had a team full of local juniors, lost the 90 grand final um, to a really powerful club like Canberra being the out-of-town power club full of um, rep players. Full of Queenslanders, Um, yeah. Full of Queenslanders, which Melbourne have, have then done to Penrith last year. And this year, I know we're, we're at midway through the 2021 20, uh, season. And unfortunately, Nathan Cleary's just been hurt. But before Nathan Cleary did his shoulder, he hadn't been in a losing game. So they've come back yeah. off the grand final, similarly to 91, and just a lot of sides fall off. And they've both this year and that year, they seem to have really gone, nah, well, we're not having that. And, and really again. powered through. Yeah, so it's, it's very interesting because they're a club that, Penrith probably haven't had a lot of success really historically. So it's a, it's a yeah. funny little bit of symmetry there. That when they do go, they go quite large. <laughs> yeah. 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 Um, but someone who, a side that didn't go large in 91 was the Gold Coast. Uh, two win- usual, are you sure? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I struggled to believe it as well. Two wins, a yeah. draw and 19 losses uh, with a minus 252 points difference to see them at the bottom of the table. Who'd they beat? Uh, that's a good question. I'll try and find that out for you. Well, what yeah, an interesting you could, question. That'd be good. Yeah, no, I will. I bet it was us. I bet it was too. That might have been the year that it might have been the year, and I, I mentioned this on the Facebook page through the week. Uh, the year that Sam Stewart 
played uh, played five eight up there. Uh, oh, you'll be. <laughs> They beat they beat Parramatta sixteen eight in round five yeah. uh, at Seagull Stadium, and they beat the Newcastle Knights sixteen twelve at Newcastle. Yeah, we, we have a really bad history of beating any Gold Coast teams. Have you noticed yeah, that yeah, we yeah, never yeah. beat the Titans? And never no, beat, a, a friend of mine. Beat, the Chargers beat us the year we won the comp. We, we, we lost to the yeah. Chargers when we won the competition. It's terrible. A, a, anyway. friend, of mine, yeah, uh, a friend of mine goes on about this at length. Uh, so they also had a draw with St. George early in the year. They were actually one win and one draw out of the first five and then one, uh, one out of their next, uh, what, 17. Anyway. Um, yeah. Good. Yeah, so that's just a night on 91. Uh, top try scorer that season, Alan McIndoe from the Steelers with 19. Top point scorer, Dale Halligan with 196. Good going from McIndoe because the Steelers weren't really anywhere um, that year. So to have scored 19 tries is very good. Uh, and this is, of course, the year that Canberra won $1.5 million over the cap, um, which is a little bit stiff on Wests given they had to play them in week one of the finals off two games in six days. Whoa. If we put that one point five in those days, I mean, even now, like let's put that yeah. in modern terms. Even now, that's Mal Meninga and Bradley Clyde, like yeah. roughly. Like, I mean, I mean, Bradley Clyde, you know, might be eight hundred grand these days or something like that. You know, and, yeah. and Mal, Mal or Ricky or Daly would all be on that. So that's then. But what about then? What about then? How much would that have been? That'd be all of them over the cap. Right? That'd be it. You know would I mean? be a stunning yeah. amount. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Well, if you look at who they had, to say who they had to shed. Uh, they ended up having to let go of Glenn Lazarus, Brent Todd, David Barnhill, Nigel Gaffey, and Paul Martin. So, you know, you looked at sort of both their starting front rowers, you know. To make a point, like, I don't, I think that's a, like not, if you look at who was left, I think basically only losing Glenn Lazarus that is of any note well, compared yeah. to the rest of the, like, if you looked at your best, as good as those other players are, you yeah. go through their actual team and go through the players, how many of their top seven best players went, and it would only be Glenn Lazarus. You actually go through Clyde, Daly, Stewart, Meninga, Delcha. Yeah. They're not losing any of the top end of the roster. Mm. But anyway, but we're not here to it, talk about that. No, no. <laughs> but no, you're absolutely right. And it just goes, again, it goes to the disparity in the competition. And this yeah, was also bullshit. the year of the Terry Hill draft case. This is the 91s, the introduction mm. of the draft. Terry Hill wanted to go to West uh, mm. to sign with the Wok uh, and was drafted to East and had to spend the year trying to get his next. Uh, trying to get himself back to West and did eventually get there in 92, but might have been playing in this game were it not for yeah. that, uh, that, that protracted legal dispute. Well, there's a couple of things on that. I think, firstly, I assume I speak for both of us when I say Terry Hill's court case is why I got into law. Um, yes. I'm getting close to, <laughs> to, right. to Terry Hill's draft case. Um, yeah. The second best thing about that is obviously that Terry Hill then, like, sort of after fighting that hard to get to Western Suburbs, pisses off to Manly fairly quickly yeah. afterwards. <laughs> but, you know, he was fighting for autonomy, I suppose, wasn't he? Not That's particularly right. to play for West. That's uh, right. But, yeah, no, it, it is very good. Um, the Terry Hill draft here, one of the one of the great moments for rugby league. Um, I think that's right. funny, isn't it, where we might have been if Terry, not for Terry Hill, you know? Well, that, that, that's in so many ways. Mm. Um, yeah, yeah. It's, in so many ways. Yeah. Uh, we might get into the game, I suppose, Gazzy, into the, the minutiae of this game. Uh, it's a, mm. it, it's There's a couple of things about the pre-game. The sides run out and yeah. we are greeted by the booming voice of Graham Hughes, uh, mm. who is always distinguishable to me by the way he says Canterbury. This 1991 Canterbury side, can, you always said Canterbury? Yeah, you sure, got to do it properly. Yeah, 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 Canterbury. And uh, he also 
had this funny way of saying the Winfield Cup of 1991. He had these yeah. funny little verbal tics there. They yeah, are out of the Winfield Cup in 1991. Uh, the, he is joined by Bill Anderson and Junior Pierce, who's down on the touchline. Uh, so there's that. There's also the mad magpie staggering mm. around the ground. That magpie is um, uh, quite gaga and quite menacing, can I say. Mm. Um, I'm quite, I've got a bit of a problem with magpies. And spring brings real menace for me. Yeah. Um, and seeing that giant sort of anthropomorphic magpie staggering around the ground um, was mm. was slightly jarring. The Canterbury mascots are completely mental as well, and we're going to put a picture up through the week um, mm. of that. There was some. Um, I, I think just I, I totally agree that magpies are horrifically scary to look at, which is right because people from other countries might think, oh, you know, a magpie is just a small bird, but a magpie is an incre- incredibly threatening and dangerous creature. Yeah, and the the magpie shouldn't sort of be cute and cuddly. It needs to be aggressive and quite like with really big, mad speed eyes, and this yeah. one fits the bill perfectly. It looks like, it looks it's like gonna, it could hurt you. It looks like it's going to yeah. swoop you. Yeah. Yeah. Get, hey, mate, um, get away from my nest. Yeah. Yeah, exactly right. Exactly right. And um, before we jump into the game, I'll get you to do the teams in a moment, but just yes. before that, I, one thing I wanted to note in this, and I think it's very important, is just that this is an incredible error and the peak error for shoulder pads. You watch <laughs> the players running out and the early game. <laughs> this is the peak of uh, shoulder pads, is it not? Wonderful, big, garish, obvious shoulder pads oh, everywhere yeah. on forwards. They all look so big, the forwards. Like, the yeah, just and like pads. stupidly big, yeah. like like ups, upside down triangles. Like they're, yeah. they're just enormous yeah. and then they, yeah, it, it is, uh, it's quite funny. I've mentioned before that Blocker always always accusing Steve Folks of like stuffing the shoulder pads with like really hard stuff. Yeah, like like metal or something, yeah. yeah, yeah. So I don't know if that was checked before the game. We might need to find out if there was any checking off Steve Folks' shoulder pads, but yeah, they're just all around the ground. Yeah, it's wonderful. Um, and the other thing, I will do the teams in a second, but the other thing about this game is that they pan around the ground. And it's, it looks like a good crowd, and they pan to the gate at the end of the ground, and there are mm. hundreds and hundreds, possibly thousands of people who can't get in, who are queuing yeah. to get in because, according to Graham Hughes, they don't seem to have put enough ticket sellers on. And so the, yeah. the, there, there are hundreds of people kind of, and this is my, I gotta, you've been to enough football with me to know that mm. this is my worst nightmare, like being stuck mm. outside the ground and missing the kickoff. And there are people sort of in particularly in West Jumpers, just craning, kind of trying to look over the hill to see mm. what's going on. Um, You've got to open the gates. If you haven't let them in by the start of the game, then you just have to open the gates and wear the loss that people might nick in without paying because it's your fault for not getting yeah. them in. You've just got to yeah. flood the gates open, let them in. If there's a queue, kick off, it's done. Cop it, cop it sweet, get on with it. Yeah, I think that's right. Um, it's it's my worst nightmare. And it was they, they were harrowing scenes, which frankly I found disturbing and, and difficult to look at. You you've, you do notice it by the, by the way, by about 20 minutes in, the ground is appreciably fuller. Um, yep. There must have been quite a lot of people waiting outside. And that it's a very good crowd, particularly for a Tuesday night, 17,000, uh, at a ground which was home ground to neither of the teams. Now, mm. I'll take you through the sides. Wests, uh, fullback Sean Devine, wings Wayne Simmons or Simons, and Stephen Burns, the centres Andrew Farrah and Maitland's Trevor Cogger, the halves Jason Little, Lydon and Jason Taylor, the front row Darren Britt and Steve Jackson, the hooker and captain Joe Thomas, second row Paul Langmack and David Gillespie, and the lock Graham Wynn, 
uh, and the bench for West Stanley put two reserves on during the game, Tony Rampling and Shane Flanagan. Uh, for Canterbury, fullback Ewan McGrady, the wings Paul Doolan and Matthew Ryan, the centres Darren Smith and Jonathan Davies, the halves Terry Lamb, of course, captain, and Kevin Moore. At halfback, the front row Mark Brokenshire and Bruce Maguire, the hooker Gordy Peets, second row Simon Gillies and Steve Reardon, and the lock Steve Bokes. Bench for Canterbury, Andrew Patmore, Troy Castle, Scott Tronk and Sean Skelton. Western Suburbs, of course, coached by the WOC and the Bulldogs coached by Chris Anderson. Uh, yeah. So there's a couple of things, I think, just quickly on the teams. Well, two things. Yep. Um, one, I think, uh, as you know, we like, I think it's important whenever we watch an old game to talk to look for people whose who's, uh, offspring or, or some relation is still in the game. We've got quite a few here. Yes. So Trevor Cogger, of course, with young Jack Cogger, who played for Newcastle and, and is probably in reserve grade, I think, at Canterbury at the moment. Uh, uh-huh. Played a bit of first grade there and at Newcastle. We've got, of course, Flanagan, who's been, in, been, a, been an NRL coach and father of Kyle Flanagan, also in reserve grade at the Bulldogs <laughs> yes. um, at the moment. Um, and we have... Uh, uh, Darren Britt, of course, with Dean Britt, played a bit for Souths, and, and I think he's at the Dogs in reserve grade as well. Oh, right. <laughs> There's quite okay. a lot of a, There's quite yeah, a union there, actually, yeah. yeah. Yeah, and then uh, we have, I don't know if it's his dad or not, but we do, I know that Geordie Peets is related to Nathan Peets. Yeah, I think it is his dad. Yeah, I think it is his dad, yeah. So, um, we've got Nathan Peets, who, of course, played uh, and played a State of Origin series and was uh, quite a good player for Souths and Parramatta and the Titans. Yeah, um, Scott Tronk, unfortunately, as nearly as I can no. tell, no relation to, to Shane Tronk. Yeah, I thought you would have. Um, I couldn't find it, and I even checked their ages, and he'd have to have uh, conceived him at 17, so it's not impossible, but um, given it's not listed as a relative and yep. going the age, I've, I've ruled it as unlikely yep. for now, and I'm happy to be corrected on yeah, that Yeah, I can also exclusively reveal that Andrew Farrar uh, is the uncle of uh, the great Ben Farrar, uh, formerly of, uh, yeah, of uh, Manly and uh, I think North Queensland. Oh, good. Yeah, well, that's wonderful to know. Thank you for that. No, um, happy to help. So I have one more thing on the teams for you, and yes. this is a little bit off centre. I apologise, but I think it needs Never. to be done. Yeah. So you'll be well aware, and people who've listened to us for a while will be aware of what we call sort of the chicker effect, where sort of uh, Chicka Ferguson keeps coming up in all of our games um, yeah. at length. So I'd like to put to you now that I, I was watching this game, and I just thought. Fuck, I've seen a lot of Darren Smith. So yep. I've gone back through our own catalogue. of This is our 31st <laughs> game that we've played, oh, yes. um, if you believe it. Is that right? So, yeah, yeah. So Darren or Jason have now <laughs> seen seven, seven out of 31 of the games. And it could have been, it's only not eight because Jason was injured for game one of the Fatty's um, Nevels. So yeah. we have now, both of them played in the 98 Origin, which we've um, just done. Uh, Jason played in the 95 World Cup. Uh, Darren played in the 97 World Club Challenge. So they're playing a lot of weird games too, can I say? Yeah. Um, the 97 Tri-Series has Darren in it. Yeah, um, they both like had the, funny careers. Yeah. Yeah. The 97 Super Bowl <laughs> has Darren in it. Sorry, the 98 Super Bowl has Darren of course. in it. The nine, 99 South Dogs has Darren in it. Oh. And the 98 uh, Paul Carriage Miracle has Jason has, in it. Um, Jason in it. And, and this, having looked at that, it just got me onto a weird little tangent of history and I apologize, but I'm going to take you through it if that's okay. Uh, Basically. So Darren Smith has a very strange career. So he plays from 1990 to 94 at the Bulldogs Uh then plays at 95 to 98 at the Broncos, then goes back to the Bulldogs for 99 to 02. And then goes back to the Broncos for 04, 05 doing a, like a Broncos Super League club for one year, but otherwise he has done a Bulldogs Broncos 
Bulldogs Broncos run. And that's the only teams he plays for in the NRL. Um, and he also has this really strange way of playing here where he is at from 90 to 2005. Yes. He is at Brisbane or the Bulldogs who win. There are six competitions, one in that time, not counting Brisbane Super League. And there's a seventh if we go one year to his retirement, the seven. But he only wins one of them between the teams and misses like quite a stack of their grand finals. Oh, so he's always at the clubs at the wrong time. Yep. Yeah, so he's at he, he starts at the Dogs two years after their last competition win. So we'll we'll forget those because he only just started. Then at ninety to ninety four, he misses the ninety two ninety three Broncos wins. Transfers to the Broncos and misses the ninety five um, <laughs> Bulldogs win. Finally gets one in ninety eight for yes. Brisbane. Then transfers back to the Dogs for ninety nine to 02 and misses Brisbane. And um, then he goes back to the Broncos for o, o four o five and misses the Dogs o four win. Um, despite being in the competition for all of these. And then <laughs> he retires a year before the Broncos win the competition in 2006. So he could have won <laughs> seven grand finals by being at all those teams um, and playing for one more year. He could have won seven comps, but he only won one plus the Super League, to be fair. So funny. I just think that's, that's very odd that you would play for 15 years at the Bulldogs and the Broncos where seven competitions were won and only win one. <laughs> that's very good. I'm really glad you've done that. That's marvellous. Um, Darren Smith, yeah. I, Jeff Gerard did a similar thing in the 70s and 80s. He kept flipping between Manly and Parramatta and always being on the losing side of the grand final. Yeah, um, he did. Um, yeah. There's a, another thought, one's Amos Roberts. Amos Roberts went to the team who won the comp like two or three times, like could transferred out of the team or to the team that had just won or something like that. And Yeah, played or, for the yeah, reigning premiers the next yeah. year, but yep. never actually played in a yep. you know, premiership win. Mm. I'll give you one more piece of historical quirk, which actually involves mm. Darren Smith, right? This is... Just the span of the players in this game. Graham Wynn plays lock for Wests in this game. He played in the 1979 grand final for as a 21-year-old for St. George. Mm. Darren, Darren Smith played on the 2003 Kangaroo Tour and retired in 2005. That's so, mental, isn't it? So between two players in this game, you can span 30 years of or 27 years of rugby league history. Wonderful, isn't it? There you go. Um, it yeah. is good. There are also a lot so he of... He retired in 05, right? So if he yeah. retired in 05, he quite possibly could have played... Uh, it's a shame. I think Carmichael Hunt debuted the next year. I was going to say he could have played with Carmichael Hunt and someone from the 70s. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's really, right. Yeah. Really, but there'll be someone like that. There'll be a really young Bronco there in 05 that will have played with Darren Smith, who also played with someone who like played in the 70s. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. And that's right. And so the other thing about these... These two teams, there's a lot of coaches in these sides. A lot of people who went on to coach and like largely very unsuccessfully. Um, there are two premiership coaches, of course, Steve Folks and Shane Flanagan. Um, mm-hmm. But there's also, and there's a grand final losing co-coach in uh, Andrew Farrar. Um, mm-hmm. But there is also Jason Taylor, uh, Paul mm-hmm. Langmack and, uh, and Terry Lamb. Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah. All, all former coaches who, who played in this game and, uh, coached to fairly fairly varying yeah. uh, levels of success over the years. <laughs> and are probably arguably the best players of, of all. If you're going to pick which ones would be good coaches, um, you possibly would have picked them over the ones that were, wouldn't you? Because they were sort of the best yeah, Terry, players. Yeah, Terry Lamb and Paul quite comfortably. Yeah. Remarkable yeah, careers. Jason Taylor, I was, yeah. I was reading about yeah. Paul Langmack's career today. He played for a remarkably long time. I think he yeah. had six, 16 seasons in first grade. Um, 
yeah. a lot in the forwards. Isn't Remarkable. It? Yeah, won a lot of comps. And a wonderful career. Um, Terry Lamb, of course, speaks for itself. Now, uh, we, I suppose we should look at the game. Uh, mm. The the uh, Wayne Pierce really lowballs the credits. Is oh, it's well in when well in excess of seven or eight thousand. Um, it's, it's actually it ends up being ends up being seventeen thousand. There, there is some really good football played early on. Wastes have a lot of possession in the in the Canterbury ten and can't crack them. And then Canterbury have a go back at them, and there is a within in, in the tenth minute when Canterbury are having their first look at the Western Suburbs line, there's a bidding. Now, you don't often yeah. see biddings this early in a game. And, like, it's mm. it's for a professional foul, but it's a fairly kind of line ball one, I thought, um, for a leg pull uh, on, a, on a Canterbury player on the line. Uh, it's Joe Thomas who gets sent to the bin. Um, Harrigan, sorry, I should say it's Bill Harrigan as referee, um, absolutely fires him just without a moment. So just off you go, no, bin, 10 in the bin. Um there had been some thrilling passing from Canterbury to get to that position, but uh, it means that in in after just ten minutes of the game, Wests are playing with twelve. Uh, what did you think of that bidding? It, it seemed a bit, seemed a pretty yeah, uh, pretty skinny one to me. Well, I reckon that if they went now, it'd be borderline and everyone would accept it. But if it's borderline, and everyone accepts it now. It usually means it's quite horrific the further you go back because they were a lot more lenient. I thought it was pretty yeah. tough. Um, it, it was a bit of a leg pull, but I mean, there was a million in the game, you know, like there's just a million leg pulls. And yeah, it and it also, but, it also wasn't just him that would participate. Like Graham Wynn sort of plays his part in flipping him, yeah. flipping the, the, the tackle player on his back. It, it, yeah, it was interesting. Mm. Um, but, he, but anyway, Joe Thomas goes to the bin. It doesn't cost West anything, though, apart from the penalty, which comes from that that incident. Uh, and Jonathan Davies takes the penalty from next to the post. And I just wrote, smacks it with an exclamation mark. Yeah. He, he, like it, it, it would have hit the mere space station. Yeah, um, it's ma- uh, unbelievable. I've never seen anyone kick a ball that high for goal. No, it's still going up when it goes through the posts and, like, no. it's still going up for quite some time after. He just puts yeah. it into orbit. Uh and then someone, someone on the Facebook page, I put the, the link to the game up and someone immediately commented, is this the game where Bill started his crackdown on offside from the kickoff, which is like an astonishing piece of knowledge. Um, yeah. But he is correct. that who, I'll get the name of whoever said that, but he's absolutely correct. The, in, in this, after this penalty, there is a... Wests immediately give a penalty away. They're offside at the kickoff, and Bill Harrigan pings them. Now, Bill wasn't uh, <laughs> wasn't standing on the halfway on the sideline like he did in later years, which he kind of claimed was a great innovation. Um, but yes, Paul Nichols was this the game where Bill started his crusade against players staying on the side at the kickoff? Yes, it was. Penalty to penalty yeah. to Canterbury gets them upfield, uh, and they're unable to score though, even with the extra man. Yeah, I had a note on that. I thought it was um I, I had a note that it was typical Bill Harrigan me, me, me showmanship. Um <laughs> now you no, 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 no. You can tell me, look, you can sit here and tell me that it's they broke the rules. And they were, they were offside at the kickoff. But the fact that this totter focuses on it just goes to show that me, me, me way that he viewed rugby league, it's all about him because it's just a pointless infringement. It doesn't matter. Like why watch of all things 
come up with an obsession because I remember him. I, I didn't know he started it here, obviously, but I remember he used to be really finicky on looking for it. And you're like, what does it? It just doesn't make any difference if you're two steps offside from the kickoff. Like, there's no advantage to be had because you've got to run forty meters to get to the bloke no, with the ball. You're hoovering the ball to the dead ball line of the in goal, and. It, unless you're like 10 metres offside, it makes no difference. And pinning people for being a step or two offside, it's just him wanting to have a say and show people how good he was. <laughs> Look at me. I was watching for this and I got you. And that's how good I know the rules of rugby league. I accept that it, it is an infringement, but that's why he's looking for it. So he can make it about him. Yeah, I, look, I, I accept your point. And uh, yeah, we've just we've given Bill a few bikes on this show. I, I really, yeah, God forbid if he ever listens to it, we'll end up in court. But, yeah, I but, hope but, he does. Well, <laughs> But Paul Nichols, uh, that wonderful comment and wonderful knowledge. We, we salute you. Uh, it doesn't, nothing comes of that penalty. Uh, but, but Wests, having had a lot of ball early on, find themselves stuck in their own half for a bit when, when uh, Thomas is off the field. And I thought that, I don't know what you made of this, but I thought that the thing that really got them out of it was some just superb kicking by Jason Taylor. He... They are really pinned early, like between the 10th and the 20th minute. They're really pinned in their own half a lot. They're pinned in their own 30 a lot. And he is getting them 20 metres on kicks that other kickers in the game just wouldn't have got them. Like Canterbury are doing all this good work and he's undoing it with the way that he keeps kicking upfield. Absolutely. Jason Taylor was was my man of the match. Um, stunning. Only one, one, only one possible competitor that we'll talk about when we get to the dogs tries, but um, he was outstanding and you're right. He just kicked him and kicked him and kicked him. And he, he, he didn't just kick in this game. He moved his forward to pack around really well when they were on top and he really, yeah. like when they were on top, he really rolled forward with them and really kept and grinded really beautifully. But in this part of the game where they were struggling, his kicking game was just exceptional and it just denied Canterbury chances, which I suspect Canterbury probably would have taken because the way we watched them attack when they did get time and space was they were they definitely had the better attacking game and they had the weapons yep. there and he didn't give them a chance to use them when they had a numerical advantage and the momentum. Yeah, I, it was it was the that, it's a real um, and you've, it's gone out of the game a little bit that 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 type of kicking. I suppose you see a little bit of it from Nathan Cleary, but it's very rare you see players. The kicking, long-range kicking now is a lot more about accuracy than it is about distance. And he had that old style from the 90s, which Ricky Stewart did and and which he did, to, the sort of inside-out hitting of the ball so that it would spiral up the field. Yeah. Um, and he cannoned some, some absolutely superb kicks early in the game. Uh, it's 2-0, though, all the way through that 10-minute period until the 18th minute when Bruce Maguire, who was fantastic... Like we watched him in '89, and remember we both said, "God, who's this bloke?" Like we'd never seen him before. We hadn't heard of him. He's, he's not one of the better known Balmain players from that side, and so you kind of. And we kept watching him, and going, "Who is who is this Bruce Maguire?" Uh, and we're both very happy to find that he played for New South Wales and Australia. He takes so many runs in the first twenty minutes of this game, but he he gives away a penalty here while in possession, about twenty five out from his own posts by leading with the arm and just clocking Steve Jackson in the face with an elbow. Yeah. Uh, you said he took a lot of runs in the first 20 minutes. He shouldn't have been taking any more. Yeah. <laughs> After that. <laughs> oh, oh. <laughs> oh, God, if that happened on the street, you get five years jail. It, yeah. It, it, it's the commentary around this incident, which I suspect you'll have written down and I'll, I'll, I'll let you go through, is unbelievable. 
that they think that this is okay. Like he, he doesn't lead with even a forearm as they call it. He leads with his elbow and cannons it into the guy's head running the yeah. football. Yeah. <laughs> um, and, and I suppose, you know, maybe a bit of, you know, Steve, well, Steve Jackson after all, maybe there's a bit of 89 yeah. kind of sting. <laughs> you know, that's for 89, mate, cop this. Yeah. I've got to tell you, cause Steve Jackson's a pretty big bloke and he went down like a sack of potatoes. Like he, he goes straight and yeah. you can actually hear him on the effects mic go, oh, you know. Yeah, and oh. he goes down hard, and it's a mystery that he stays on. But yeah, that that leads Jason Taylor to kick a goal from twenty five out in front to make it two all. Um, you're right; if it happened now, um, it's pretty hard to see how you'd stay on, and you'd probably cop about six weeks. Did you hear what the specific claim? I'm I'm disappointed that you might have missed this, but the specific claim that is made is yeah. that uh, it bounced up off the chest, which is incredibly close <laughs> to it bouncing up, up off, off the, the ball. ball. <laughs> and uh, it very much didn't bounce off the chest. He, he he runs with his elbow up, and the point of his elbow hits the guy in the face. Like in the yeah, he just cloaks you up. <laughs> he hits he hits the first tackler. Two players come in, and the first tackler he gets with the forearm, and then he kind of yeah. turns and just just whacks Jackson right in the gob with the point of his elbow. It's like, it's, it's, it's quite violent. Um, but I mean, Bruce Maguire incidentally had only just come to Canterbury. He'd left uh, Balmain after 1990 when the walk left and he'd gone to Canterbury and by all accounts it was a very good signing for them. He, he, there's a lot of talk in the commentary of how he had lifted them um, and made them a better side. And this was, this was his era. He was kind of in his pomp, at this time, like the late 80s, early 90s, where he was playing tests and, and playing for New South Wales, um, he, his, his five games for New South Wales were in 89 and 90. Um, mm. So so this is kind of, this is his time. And he, he, he was very good in this game, but he was uh, quite loose as well. I was a, he was fantastic in the game. Yeah, absolutely. He really, really had a strong game, you know, amongst a lot of good players. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so he and, and he's one of the two notes I made. Well, one of the three kind of players that I noted out of the early stages of the game. There's obviously him, Maguire, as a just a workhorse, taking so many runs and really good strong runs. Uh, there is uh, Jason Taylor's kicking, and there is also Ewan McGrady, who is so dangerous on the kick returns early in this game. We like Canterbury are pinning Wests, and Taylor is undoing all their good work by kicking it. But Ewan McGrady is often then undoing Taylor's good work by bringing it back um, and slicing them, uh, slicing them apart. And it, it reminded me a little bit of he keeps making these half breaks. Mm. And in the first half an hour, you know that episode of The Simpsons where there's the big mafia fight outside their house and the Yakuza turn up and there's the, and there's yeah. the, and there's the bloke in the suit who's standing there and Homer keeps saying, I don't, want to, I don't want to go inside until I see that guy do something. He's going to do something and it's going to be really good. Yeah. <laughs> That's what it's like with Ewan McGrady. Oh. It's like he, at some point in this game, Ewan McGrady, you can just tell, is going to do something absolutely dazzling. And Yeah, uh, yeah because he, he's just so threatening um, and, and so dangerous. Now, yeah, so we'll come back to that because um, in the second half, he sort of he, he breaks into life. Um, but there is a play in the 25th minute uh, where they put it through the hands to McGrady. He puts he just holds it up, holds it up beautifully and puts Davies through 40 metres out. Davies slices up the touchline, burning them, comes to the fullback. He's got three support players to his right. He could have passed to any of them, and instead he boots it ahead 
and uh, and Joe Thomas inexplicably wins the race to the bouncing ball and forces it in goal, sort of. Um, the in-goal touchy, I suspect, has a bit of a guess and Canterbury have a, get a dropout out of that and uh, and Kevin Moore bakes Jonathan Davies for not passing the ball. But it's it's the first it's it's the first moment of passing from Ewan McGrady after all that running. It's a wonderful piece of football. Um, he was fantastic. He reminded me really forcibly of Ben Barber or someone like that. Like just yeah. that scything broken field play um, off the cuff. Where if you just give if you don't present a straight line, he would just take off. And then he could take off and beat you with a pass, or he could take off and go through himself. He was, oh, I can't speak any higher. And we'll talk about what he does in the second half. But I, let me just say that I'm sold, like sold, sold, oh, sold. Yeah. It's the first time I've yeah. seen him play, and he was beautiful. But if you if, if you're younger out there wondering what sort of player he was, um, it, it was very much in that sort of Benny Barber or Matty Bowen sort of way that he played. Yeah. Um, it was that like that broken space, like a smaller guy with skiving speed off the mark in space and a pass and stuff to go with it and a kick and all the bags. Sort of, sorry, all the sort of tricks in his bag. It was it was wonderful. Um, now, off that play, I just think, again, I think the play by West to get back there in the end goal just needs noting again because it's quite incredible. This is a break from halfway mm. where you've got run down the touchline from a centre who kicks in field and the hooker gets back from the other team to ground it in the end goal to avoid a try. And that's just – you then look at the final score. That's basically what wins the game. And that's yeah. a play you don't – Nobody calls you out for not making those plays. Well, you're nope. a forward and, and they make a break on halfway on your own half and they break down the touchline. If you just jog after and watch what's happening, nobody will call you out for it. But it's that um, James Graham's the great one in our time who would always jog back in case. That, you know, he yeah. always ran back in case. And, and this is one of those, I'm going to run back in case because you never yep. know. He would have been I'm not needed now, but I... I'm not needed now, but I might be. Yeah, and it is. It's it gets there. Yeah, yeah, and even Wonderful. even if even if Davies did like even if kicking rather than passing wasn't the right play, you've still got to get there, and they still should have scored. Yep. And and Thomas gets there and saves the day. But the question, Gazzy, is should he have been on the field? <laughs> because just before this, he comes over the top and absolutely irons out uh, the the Canterbury winger Paul Doolan with mm. a swinging forearm to the face. I have written here that it is a send-off and at least six weeks now. Um, Bill Anderson helpfully says doesn't think there's much in it um, and blames Doolan for having his head in the wrong spot, which I thought was a nice touch, um, which causes Wayne Pierce to <laughs> quite waspishly point out that the bloke's spitting blood. Like he's kind of... <laughs> yeah. Yeah. He's laying on the ground like clearly knocked out and they start the trainer really manically he's laying upside down like on his back looking up dazed and the trainer starts squeezing water into his mouth which i'm not sure he asked for and then he sort of starts gargling and spitting out blood out of his mouth um it's it's not six weeks it's 10 weeks now you get one of those adrian morley example sentences like because he jumps and swing arms him in the head and the commentary around it is in the era we're in now, so we're in 2021 in the middle of a crackdown and a concussion crisis, the, the commentary around this, because it was a bad high tackle then, not yeah. now. It yeah, was yeah, a bad yeah. high tackle then, and they are just going, and they start calling out like the bull, and when he gets back up, the bulldogs, they start going like, oh, you know, oh, apparently he's all right, doesn't look too bad and all this stuff. He's spitting up blood on the ground. It's a terrible tackle. <laughs> yeah, it is. it's appalling. And, and Wayne Pierce, who is like the most mild-mannered and gentle bloke, as, like from everything you see about of him in the media, like he, he sort of doesn't have a bad word to say to anyone. 
but he kind of, he really does have to take Bill Anderson to task over this because yeah. he's saying, oh, yeah, I don't there's much in it. You know, it's a pretty easy. And Pierce says, yeah, well, I think the fact that he's spitting out blood suggests you might not be right there, Bill. Yeah. <laughs> Which is hard yeah. to argue with. My old man had done nice and one of the toughest like dudes ever. Like if, if someone like if it was a bit soft, Wayne Pierce would have like possibly noticed had been one of the hardest. Yeah, there is also that. The yeah. 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 It, yeah. It, it's it's a, he really sort of calls out like the guy's play acting and the guy's quite clearly what we would say now is that he was knocked out and that he was not gonna pass the concussion protocol during the week to play the next week. Oh, this um, is the thing. Be, yeah. he would have had a month <laughs> off. Like Doolan would have had yeah. a month off from how hard he got hit. Yeah. The, if yep. that happened today, Doolan would get a month. Would have to would have to sit out for a month, and and Thomas would be gone for a while, like for a couple yeah. of months. Yeah. yeah, and so when he then, so when Joe Thomas then, you know, is the one who <laughs> gets back and rescues the Paul off the Davies break, um, it's a real moment in the game. Uh, it, mm. it, it's an incredible decision by the Ingold Touchy, by the way, and I think he completely guessed because I saw the replay front on and had no idea whose hand got on it, um, and I think a video ref would have found that decision really hard. And it, I, and I think that the Indian touchy might have just eyed that in and gone, ah, oh, yeah, I reckon West got there. Benefit of the doubt. Yeah. Well, you've got to have a guess. And, I mean, it's one of those things, isn't it? There was three Bulldogs there and he got himself in the frame close enough to make it murky. So, yep. you know, um, he gets the benefit out of it. Um, overlooked, I suppose, one thing to add there is just that, firstly, he could have been binned twice, which would have been good. Um, yeah. and, and secondly, is that I think it's a wonderful concept, and we'll talk in a moment about the reaction to the next binning and how it compares to this one not being binned, but at this point, we've now had a really soft binning for a leg pull and a non-binning for, like, a complete violent knocking out of an opponent, yeah. like spitting blood. So it just talks to um, priorities. Yeah, that's <laughs> right. What, what are we trying to stamp out here? Yeah, leg we've had... People being not cold. Yeah, we've had an elbow to the face and a swing and a stiff arm swinging arm to the head, both kind of penalty and nothing more, but the leg pull has, uh, has seen yep. someone sent to the bin. I, what follows is the most blatant professional foul I have ever seen, <laughs> the worst professional foul that I've seen in all my time watching football. There is a huge break from uh, Trevor Cogger from West a couple of minutes after. <laughs> so, so, so they save them. So Canterbury make that break and they save it. Canterbury don't score. West get the ball back. And they make this beautiful break. Trevor Cogger breaks upfield and is grasped about 10, oh, maybe 10, 15 metres out. <laughs> West have got them completely shot to pieces. There's no Canterbury chases back. Like the, the Canterbury defensive line is about six blokes. They swing it through the back line. Taylor gets the ball, passes to Lyndon. And Terry Lamb comes from behind the line. <laughs> like he comes from behind the West's attackers behind the play the ball to tackle Lyndon. <laughs> it's it's oh. so funny. I was off my head because, like, not only is he offside, he, like, he wasn't even in the West line. No. He has to run him down. Yeah, he has to chase him down. It's so good. I, was, I went completely burko. And Terry Lamb really argues the toss as well. <laughs> yeah, yeah, not a penny. Um, the, the reaction to this, this is what I was going to talk to you about because this I find very oh, yes. funny. The, yes. the commentators get really, really outraged by this. They say it's disgraceful. They call 
for bigger penalties than a sin bin and yeah. start calling for the Players Association to issue fines for, yeah. for professional fouls of this nature, which is followed up by a call that 10 minutes in the bin is not long enough and you should be bin 20 minutes yeah. for, a, for a professional foul of this it's, nature. It's quite a lot of moral outrage, isn't there? Graeme Hughes, it's, yeah. Yeah, Graeme Hughes starts calling for a fine. Bill Anderson says that's a, that won't do anything because the clubs will pay it instead of the players. And then Wayne Pierce goes, no, I think there should be a 20-minute send-in. Yeah, Um, so (laughs) keeping in mind that these people, apart from possibly Pierce, were well okay with players spitting blood, knocked out cold on the ground from swinging arms and from elbows to the head, but think there should be, needs to be like players associated stepping into fine and having a quarter of the game off for tackling someone like from offside. It's funny, is it? It's funny as a kind of, I think it's a certain type of rugby league machismo. That, yeah. that, that thinks that, like, you know, tripping, there's this real moral outrage about tripping. Yep. The same people who will say that the crackdown's dumb and ruining the game and, oh, we may as well be playing touch football, will then be, like, really ardently calling for tripping to be an automatic sin bin. Yeah, yeah, there's, there's some things that are considered below the belt, and that's probably changed with this. I think everyone does this now, and people just accept that you should save the try. And- yeah, yeah. Top ten minutes. That's probably changed, but at this point, there seems to be it seems to be one of those non fair play offences. Like if you yeah. play rugby league, you're entitled to belt each other in the head and deck on and have a beer after the game. But this isn't fair play. Like to tackle the guy from no knowing you're offside and knowing you, you can't do it. That's not fair. And not fair is no good. Like we're all about no. fairness, and that's that's, that's the right. end of it, isn't it? I reckon that has changed. I think so many people do it now that you know. Everyone does that, and you just know that if it's not a try or a penalty try, they go into the bin and everyone goes, ah, oh, you know, they had to do it to save the try, and we yeah. all get on with it. And, but it and, seems to, yeah. And this is, you know, and it ends up being, I mean, Terry Lamb, on balance, they end up better off for Terry Lamb doing this. Wests get a penalty, which Taylor bangs over from 20 out. They don't mm. push on and try and score. They don't. They would have scored off that play. Um West go four two in front and don't score again during the time Lamb's off the field. So you know it ends up they end up in they end up better off for that having happened. But yes, it's uh, it, it was just the whole thing, the, the 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 incredible, incredibly blatant professional foul, <laughs> followed by the deranged moral panic from the Channel Ten commentary team, um, mm. really did make that one of the highlights of the match for me. Uh, as they go yeah. into halftime, it's it's four two to Wests. Um, there is just a there's a great stat from Bill Anderson. He says that just just drink this in. Up to the prior to this game, West and Canterbury had played 111 games in first grade mm. and had won 52 each with seven draws. They were they were yeah. dead split down the middle. I heard that. I was going to mention it earlier, but I, I was going to jump in when you were talking about the history of the clubs and how West had gone recently and how Canterbury being because it's quite funny isn't it to think that they've been equally successful each other to then think about how successful the Bulldogs had been at winning competitions um, yeah and, and, and where they went from in, here yeah. you know yeah yeah, yeah. And, and that's right um I, the other thing I think had to be mentioned just before it, it was a few minutes before half time there was yeah. talk that the Bulldogs had been helped by a certain refereeing tendency of Bill Harrigan's that I want to mention to you because it's a siren moment where we have to mention it. Um, There was a suggestion that what was keeping the Bulldogs in the hunt at this point was Bill Harrigan's big five (laughs) metres. 
I missed that, unfortunately. A big five, yeah. A <laughs> long five. five oh, no. Yeah, that's right. It was a big five. The West wanted a skinny five. The yeah. Bulldogs wanted a big five. Nobody just wanted five. That's No, that's, nobody, that's ever wants, nobody ever wants five no. or ten. Everybody no, wants five. A, yeah, yeah, that's do you right. Think, um, but, um, here's a question for you. How do you think Jason Taylor's status in the game would be different if, he had, if they had not changed the five-metre rule at the time? in the middle of his career and at the time they did. If he'd have played his whole career under the five-metre rule when it was more of a pitched territorial battle, I dare say that he would have had an even bigger reputation in the game. The way he kicked here and the way he was able to relieve pressure and put you in the part of the field you wanted to get to when it was harder to get there, um, I I suspect that he uh, would have been a much bigger deal upon his retirement. That's an interesting question. Um, I... I hadn't thought about that. Uh, look, I, his game does suit that. He has a game that mm. suits that style of play. But I, I, to, in fairness to him, before I bag him in a moment, I, I would say that I was really impressed with him in games that were played under the 10-metre rules too. I thought he was fantastic against Brisbane in 96 and, and showed he could certainly yeah. do plenty of his good stuff under those rules as well. I, I would say that Jason Taylor, as a player, um, I don't think the rules or anything else have much to do with it. The bottom line is whether because of anything innately within him or because of luck and circumstance, which is a large part of rugby league, there was some big moments in his career that he didn't nail. And that's yeah. why his reputation isn't where it is. And I don't know how much that has to do with the rules. And, you know, uh, yeah, he's the end of the match for me in this game. And at the end of the game, there's a moment that again, just goes against him that could have ended this one and we'll, we'll mm. get to, but it, it's, um, I think on, on him, I was only thinking of this last night when I watched Mitchell Moses play for Parramatta, who's a very different type of player, but Mitchell Moses missed a penalty goal to win last night in the NRL against, against at full time down 13-12 against, uh, par, against Penrith. And mm. he did the same thing in the finals last year. And it occurred to me that if Mitchell Moses was to retire tomorrow, it would probably be a similar rep to Jason Taylor where you'd say, geez, he was really good and did all these good things, but, oh, God, it didn't really come together when it mattered, did it? And that's probably what happened to Taylor, whatever the rules is, whether it's mm. – I'm not even saying – I'm not calling him a choke or anything like that, to be honest with you. I just think it through just luck, happen. circumstance, happenance and everything else, when there was some big moments in his career, he just didn't quite nail him. Yeah, that's probably true. And Yeah, it's, it, it, that is true. Um, but, I, yeah, it, it was interesting watching him. Yeah, uh, it's a good point. How, it was I'd like, never thought that, of it. Yeah. That territorial kicking seemed to be a much bigger deal under the five-metre rule. And lacking a yard of pace seemed to be a little bit less less important, um, and so maybe yeah. he, maybe he would have been uh, slightly more valuable. I mean, he was obviously he was he was very valuable anyway, and had a very good career, yeah. which not many people um, would would turn their noses up at. But yeah, just no. uh, just something I thought watching the game. No, I think that's pretty fair. I, I think I, just to add it on there again, I was just thinking about it because he got me thinking. I think the only thing that probably holds back is that if you look, there's just always someone else. And if you look at that yeah. era, I, I would say that Brandy Alexander and Ricky Stewart could kick as well as he was, as well as he did. And Brandy was lightning and athletic. And um, Ricky had the long, like had the beautiful, like more class with Taylor with his passing game to set up tries yeah. and stuff. And then if you go a few years later when he's in the middle of his career, Andrew could probably kick as well as he could, but then also had, you know, Andrew things as well. So it was probably, he was probably almost, he, he was, he played an origin as Ricky's understudy on the bench. Um, and then, you know, as Brandy goes out and Andrew comes in, he probably was probably a period where he always would have been the second or third best halfback going around 
for, yeah. for New South Wales almost the whole way through, and that probably might have stayed the same anyway. But it, it's a really good point you make because he was outstanding at, at almost everything you could coach, wasn't he? <laughs> in a way, oh, he this this game yeah. he he is yeah. in all of the he he is such a big part of them winning this game through yeah. things that we don't we don't we don't they're not as big a part of a halfbacks game now. You know that that long kicking um, and his goal kicking and all that. Like you don't get as many penalties as he kicked in this game. People don't take them yep. as often. You know, mm. um, being a good goal kicker got you. Like they, he get he gets them four or six points in this game. They just wouldn't have had that end up winning them the game. Yep. Yeah, it's interesting. Anyway, I, I don't want to steering the side around as well. Like the steering part of the game with yep. five meters, you had to move everyone where you wanted him, and he does a really good job of moving his forwards and getting the ball yep. to the right part of the field and everything. Yeah, he's a really, really good player. I've enjoyed watching a lot of his games. Yeah, so have I. Now, halftime, Western Suburbs four, Canterbury two. Uh, it's I, I just wrote here that it was a very tough, hard game with lots of mm. lots of breaks and half chances, and nobody had quite been able to stick the last pass and get themselves a try. Um, Canterbury seemed to have a bit more attacking upside, as we said. Taylor bailing Wests out when they were under pressure. Um, the, the, a moment at halftime that I just have to mention, uh, Graham Hughes says Canterbury had their biggest crowd for several years last week against Cronulla, uh, and, and the club want to thank John Laws for his support. John Laws from 2UE. Um, <laughs> For his for his support, um, presume, I don't I don't know in what sense maybe whipping up the crowd on his on his radio program, encouraging people to get out to Belmore. Um, I don't know what that Getting was all boomers. about. <laughs> po- out there, possibly. Well, as Paul Keating said, when you talk to John Laws, you talk to Australia. And uh, <laughs> so, did you? Fascinating. Well, I, I, I just thought that, that I must say, yeah, maybe it was a maybe. I, I, yeah. yeah, go on. Well, I just think, firstly, I'd like to think that if there was a big crowd, I'd love to know how that could be drawn back to John Laws over, say, Terry Lamb or something, or, yeah. or Ewan McGrady, who wins the Rothmans medal, <laughs> the best player in the competition, and they had a game they had to win to yeah. make the, the finals or to make a playoff or whatever. Like this, That was do or die to get in the finals. But I love the thought that they weren't there for that. They were there for John Laws, I suppose. Yeah. Um, <laughs> And and secondly, just I just want to remind everyone that in once I don't know why he was reading this out, but it got it got played on the continuous call team for years. That there was once a time where John Laws is trying to call out a, a, a team list and calls out Nigel Vagina and <laughs> Nigel Bunkana. I just I just never cease to find that funny. So yeah. I just had to mention it. I'm glad that just you like that yeah, up. yeah, someone had to. Yeah, it's good. Nigel Vagina, and you're going yeah, real rugby league man is all I really think about that. <laughs> Yeah, good on you, Lawsy. Uh, the yeah. golden tonsils. Uh, anyway, I, I'd love to know more about that, but uh, about the, uh, the what what Graham Hughes was referring to. But anyway, um, now the, the second half begins with a, a, an extraordinary incident, which I can't allow to pass. Canterbury kickoff. It's an ordinary kickoff by ordinary, just like a normal kickoff. They boot it downfield. It's sailing towards Andrew Farrer, and for some reason. <laughs> He just he just ducks out of the way. Yeah, it bounces basically twice. It doesn't go anywhere near the dead ball line. No, he's um, like about a yard behind the goal line, and he just it's, it's coming at him, and he just ducks and flinches, and the ball bounces and goes dead. Someone, I think, Bill Anderson suggested he thought that 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 uh, Farrah might have thought that it was about to hit the goalpost. Um, I don't I don't know why that would have caused him to to flinch in the way that he did. I don't know what happened there, whether he lost it in the lights or what no. it was, but it was very bizarre and, and I've got to tell you quite funny. 
hijinks, kickoff hijinks. But it, it's it's almost it, it it looked like a glitch. Like if you were playing like NRL the PlayStation game or something, and that happened, yeah. you'd be like the game the game glitched. Like the guy yeah, didn't like, catch it and just watched it bounce dead, and you'd be like, oh, there's something wrong with the game. This is a bit stiff. <laughs> Lots of stupid yeah, programmers. Yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah um, exactly. Then in the then in the forty seventh minute, Bruce Maguire is penalised for another. Uh, another piece of foul play, a swinging arm very high mm. on David Gillespie. Bill Anderson again says there's not much in it. Um, mm. And that gets West's upfield. And after a midfield bomb leads to a very dicey six again call, uh, West get a full set starting on the Canterbury 10. And the Canterbury defence just inexplicably opens up like Sydney hands, allowing David Cement Gillespie to make his way through. Uh, gets a little reverse pass, walk, just walks through um, the, the open defence and for some reason does a bit of a half Michael Witt. He like holds the ball up in celebration, sort of jigging around before putting it down. Um, I didn't realise that Michael Witt was the second person to, to do that in a, in a very important moment in an elimination final. Um, yeah. But he puts the ball down, Taylor kicks the goal, Wester in front, 10 points to two. David Gillespie described on the... Uh, Channel 10 captions as aged 27 marketing rep. Yeah, I heard that. I made a note there because I'm going to say, can I tell you, yeah. whatever cement is selling, whatever he's I'm, marketing, <laughs> I'm buying, I'm in. I, I don't as, know what he's marketing, but I'm as in. The young, as the young people say these days, shut up and take my money. Oh, yeah. I, if you, if I as imagined he was a marketing rep for the club, because I know that was a position that sort of was made up for a lot of people they wanted to pay. Um, yeah. If that is the case, I would like to know why he wasn't also thanked alongside John Laws for getting the crowd out. The way started. But, <laughs> what an interesting but, question. Um, yeah, yeah. But, but it's just, I think that, uh, to give a sensible comment, uh, the try is a bit soft, but it's off relentless pressure. Yeah, they sort of pressure and yeah. pressure away, and that's how they were playing. That's why they reminded me of Cronulla in the in the Gallon sort of era, where they just chip away, chip away, chip away, and beat you yeah. down. Canberra is a good example of the last few years when they made the grand final in the prelim that chip away at you and break you down and score through your pressure rather than through your. Ex- wizard sort of play. Yeah, um, and it's a try that looks fairly uh, innocuous and there's a hundred runs like it in every game, but it's it's not the, the fact of the play. It's it's the fact that they mm. were just done knackered and they, they just couldn't keep getting up and getting into line and eventually someone is allowed yep. to just stroll through. Uh yeah, yeah, I think but that's it's very fine. Larry. I think the other thing was just that it's I, it's very mad and Larry for someone of Cement Gillespie's reputation and he's like in the game and who he was like this really tough, hard eighties forward. Like it's really lair. It is odd, isn't it? Very funny. Yeah, it, it's, I, I didn't ever think that Cement Gillespie is sort of a lair, a uh, hard lair. Neither did I. I was thrilled yeah. by it though. I got to tell you. Um, <laughs> so then, <laughs> a couple of minutes after this. So that finally West have scored. Um, this commences a period of about 10 or 15 minutes or about 10 minutes where they're really on top and, and almost sort of take the game away from Canterbury. Um, a couple of minutes later, there's a kick downfield from Taylor and on the kick return, Pat Moore, who's on on the wing, he comes on for, I think, Matthew Ryan, who's gone off. Uh, Pat Moore throws this daft pass through traffic to his teammate. Uh, they turn it over. And Ewan McGrady is penalised for striking in the ruck. There's a bit of dispute over whether that's a fair penalty. And without knowing the rules of the time, it's hard to make a call. Um, but it, it gives West a penalty about 35 metres out, just to, the, just to the right of the post. And Jason Taylor wallops it over. It's a beautiful kick, isn't it? He kicks the guts out of it. It's a beautiful strike. Um, 
and again, this is probably the sort of penalty that wouldn't get taken now because it was so far out. But he thumps it over, uh, and and it's twelve two. It, it's a superb kick. Yeah, absolutely, key kick in the game too. Really There's more to come. The yeah, that's right. Kicks them out to a ten point lead, uh, and West are really on the rise. There's the, the West. Wests have the numbers in the crowd, you know. And there's this big Magpies chant around the ground, you know, Magpies, dun dun dun, you know. Um, and for a minute, it looks like they're going to run away with the game until the 60th minute. The dogs do something out of nothing. They spread the ball through the hands from about their own 40. Darren Smith, who was really good in this game, I must say, as a you know, I, I remember him as a fairly stodgy one of those guys who could play second row or centre in a pinch. But he, he he's he's quite fast and uh, hard in this game. Gets it, puts Padmore away down the wing. I didn't think Padmore had the sort of speed that he showed here. Uh, but he breaks off down the touchline and then hoicks it like someone throwing a brick on a construction site, long inside to Ewan McGrady. The pass is about two metres forward, but McGrady shows plenty of pace, gets away from a couple of defenders and scores under the posts. And when Davies thumps the goal over from in front, it's 12-8. That's a beautiful, beautiful Try. It's Isn't so it nice. That, uh, I love a shift where the winger goes tiptoeing down the sideline and then yeah. the big hurl in field. And McGrady, not many people would have scored that. He, he gets it in field. Like it's hurled in field into traffic where the sort of guys either side yeah. of him. And when he gets it, he just hits the afterburners, goes past one, and then two people coming across probably could have got another player. And he just hits the accelerator and goes through. It's a really classy moment from, you know, who the guy who was awarded the best player in the competition that year. Um, yeah, and right. and he, it, it is just fantastic. And I can't, again, speak higher of him. Um, he has another key moment to come. And he he is phenomenal in this game. If they won, I, I called Jason Taylor man of the match, and I'll stand by that because they won. And if you're the halfback and you play that well and do what he did and your team wins, that's what you were paid to do. And he's yeah. the man of the match. But the best player on the field with yeah. McGrady. And if they won, he, he'd have been awarded it. He is in a different class to, to anyone else on that ground and is just electric and fast and and skillful. And, and it, it, you know, he kicked well. He passed well. We're going to have another pass from him soon. And yeah. the pace is just beautiful. I, I, we're going to do we, – we talked before today because there's some, a lot to say about him and he has a very strange career path and a funny career. Um, and we thought that it would go for too long if we really delved into that. So we're going to do a bring out your dead on him while yeah. this is fresh during the week to talk about that more in length and just leave for now that he is incredible in this game. And I'm th- honestly, I am thrilled to have watched a game with him in it because it was great. I loved watching him. Mm, yeah, likewise. He, he plays fullback in this game. He played most of his – uh, time at Canterbury at halfback, and most of this season at halfback finds himself at fullback, and is just superb. And you're right, um, we're going to talk. We're going to do a, a special episode, kind of telling the, the Ewan McGrady story uh, and talking about what he did and, and how he came into the game and how he then fell out of the game. And it's quite a it, it's a it's a very interesting story and quite sad in parts. But we're going to spend some time on that through the week on a separate episode so that we can mm. we can really get get into it and, and and have a good look at it and do it justice but suffice to say at the moment that he 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 blisters away shows that rugby league pace you know that mm. that half a yard off the mark that gets you through a half gap yep. um, and that's and that's why he scores this and that's why not many would have uh, but west managed to steady themselves after this a few 4 minutes later they get a penalty for a strip 45 metres out. Now, I said the last kick was good from Taylor. Mm. 45 metres out, a 45-metre penalty kick 
off sand is oh, very, yeah. very, very good going. Yeah, it's he, fantastic. He, this this is this goes over comfortably mm. and goes like almost goes dead. And it, it's a, just a superb kick. Look, in a lot of ways, to hark back to what I said about Jason Taylor's career, it's this ability. It's it's he, he's a victim of his own ability in some ways because, like, it, it becomes a bit inexplicable to have watched him kick these goals. Yeah, that when you talk about like the '97 prelim where he absolutely shanks everything and shanks really easy kicks against the Knights, that's why it's so inexplicable. Other people miss goals and other people lost games with goals. Andrew Johns lost the Origin with goals, like that we what covered last mm. week in '98. These goal kicking cost him the game, but Jason Taylor was so damn good at it that's what is then where the criticism comes from like we then have games where he misses goals key goals on kicking or shanks everything or shanks key ones and you go it's not you know that he's better than this you know that it's this guy yeah he kicks these 99 out of 100 and this is the one yeah 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 yeah. it's 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 having all of that ability and nailing 45 meter gun penalty goals in in games like that in that that makes you go that's why people go what when 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 you miss once you should kick. Well, and I know that, you know, sorry to do this, but he kicks like this at Wests and doesn't do this for the Bears. Yeah. And Halligan this same season, so he, at the same time, Halligan is missing goals for the Bears in the preliminary final or in the major semi at Penrith from all over the park. And Taylor is kicking like this for Wests. And five years later, Halligan is kicking them from all over the field for, for Canterbury and Taylor yeah. is shanking them for Norths. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. There, there, there yeah. is this horrible yeah. kind of, this is horrible, horrible kind of uh, dichotomy there. But uh, mm. he, he then repeats the dose. A couple of minutes later, they get up there again and with a six-point lead, Taylor decides to go for a field goal. And this is a really good field goal. That The setup's oh, not overly you, good. Yeah. There's a lot of traffic. He's about 25 out. And he's got a chaser coming up for the charge down. And he does the same. He had, having watched a bit of him now, he had this distinctive, very, very slow shuffle past a defender. Mm. He, he's very, he, he's very noticeable. Like a stop and prop, like a stop yeah, and prop sort of yeah. way of passing. Yeah. And it's very noticeable, noticeable that he didn't have any pace. But he, and, and the, the things that he, he does a lot of things quite slowly, but he, he gets the ball here and sort of thinks his way past the defender. He stops, lets him go past him, and then very calmly just slots this kick, which clinks in off the post. Um, very similar to the one he kicked against Brisbane uh, under a lot more pressure in that 94 game you mentioned earlier, that, that final against mm. the Broncos. Um, Terry Lamb accused, claims that it was tucked in flight and shouldn't have counted, but it goes over. West to 15-8 in front. They're looking pretty comfortable. Andrew Farrell makes a break to halfway off the kickoff and it's all Wests, you know? Mm. It's very funny. Um, you know, he he was really classy. He's kicked, we've now seen multiple field goals where he's pressured and is able to stop prop change direction and kick it without the setup. In the NRL now, most players playing need to catch it under no pressure, deep with the momentum and kick it yep. straight away. They can't beat someone, stop or do anything first and kick a field goal. If you do anything first, they lack the balance and... And and, yeah. and ability to kick it, and he seems to be able to kick them. Uh, Cherry Evans is one who can. He can kick anything yeah. off his wrong foot and in the wrong position and everything else. But not a lot of guys can. And and he's one Taylor where you could 
trouble him. And as long as he got time, he could still put on his boot and hit it um, from the wrong spot. And it's a beautiful field goal. Uh, the, I just did want to talk about the Terry Lamb thing because people might forget this, that for a large part of certainly even our football lives is that field goals didn't count if you touched them, which was an incredible complicated rule to run before video yeah before the video referee like to try and judge whether someone scraped it with their finger like it's just pointless because why does it matter it still went over the (laughs) yeah it's it's, must must be funny so if there's anyone younger listening for much of you know for a very long time if you hit someone and then went over it didn't count so i I remember seeing it in the nrl era someone like a properly kicked a field goal but it hit the guy diving to charge it down it would go over everyone and celebrate and get called back yeah it's no no goal but yeah, what a complicated rule to try and run without the benefit of video replay. Yeah, it is. There must have been some calamitous ones that were allowed or yeah. not allowed based on, on refereeing, on like very quick and vague refereeing uh, look uh, views. From nowhere near it. From, from nowhere, nowhere near it, it. yeah, and, yeah. On plodding angles. And, it. Yeah. Yeah, like players would have hit, charged them, known they hit it, like flick the ball and all this, and no, and then watch the game end the wrong way, going, oh, yeah. no, I touched that. It'd be very frustrating. Yeah. Yeah, it must have been a terrible, uh, must have been a terrible rule to enforce. Um, mm. And so West now are on the march. They really, they're, they're quite dominant in the second half. And what you said is bang on. That Canterbury kind of, uh, what would you say, kind of undermine West's dominance through attacking brilliance from halfway. Basically, like they keep, mm. yeah. they keep sniping at them from halfway and creating chances that their territory and position in the game doesn't doesn't warrant. You know, yeah. and. Yep. And there's a beautiful moment. I really enjoyed watching Terry Lamb. Can I say I, he was yeah. such a he was such a schemer, and he had mm. so many ways. You could see why he had such a long career because he had so many ways he could get you. He kicks really cleverly. He'll kick early. He'll he put it in the end goal. All this sort of thing. But then he also had all of those plays that he could run. And one of them, he he hits Darren Smith uh, with about ten minutes to go, and then wraps around and ends up on the wing. Yeah, and starts burning down the wing, and he gets the staggers and steps out, and so they dodge that particular bullet. Uh, but then, but but they're at this point they're just starting to hoist the ball around Canterbury and try these really quite vibrant attacking plays from their own half and from halfway and from a long way out. Uh, and finally, in the seventy second minute, uh, after a pass is knocked down as they hoist it side to side, they get a scrum centre field from twenty five out. Kevin Moore of all Kevin Moore runs sideways. Finds McGrady, who holds it up, holds it up, and hits Darren Smith, who's flying onto it. Classic big young raw centre, hitting a gap. He offloads to Doolan, who has a bit to do, and gets over in the corner. It's a wonderful try. That the work from McGrady is fantastic. There, like that's um, it's just you know off a sort of a sort of a block play scrum scenario where his pace just worries them. They're so worried about him that he just gets sort of gets outside his man, holds up, holds up and just times it. Yeah, the it, timing uh, is the thing, isn't Smith. it? Oh, it's beautiful. He's got that, it, 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 yeah. The best ball players, and actually Jason Smith was a lot like this, uh, the mm. brother of Darren is one that I mm. think of like this, that, that those great passes who had the ability to create space through the, through the timing of the pass, wait, yeah. wait, wait, there's the gap, bang, you know? Yeah. And McGrady does it here. He does it a couple of times off counter attacks in the first half as well, where he gets, he draws the, he just draws the defender in, lulls him in, lulls him in, and then slips the pass. Um, and it, it's, it's absolute art. 
Oh, it absolutely is. And combined with his pace and the fact that you've always got to be worried about his running, it makes it so deadly when you can also pass. The fact that you're always worried that he's going to run and he's going to burn you and he's going to shred you. So you're sort of looking for that, but then he's beating you with his passing game is just, and you know, he can beat you with short passing. He threw a few longer balls. It's, it's fantastic. And it's a really, really good rugby league try. This, the line, as you said, from Smith was fantastic. Um, you're right. He's been good in a few games. We've watched now Smith. He yep. was a pretty, pretty good rugby league player. And, and that's just lovely, lovely football and, and a really good try. And it's, um, you know, there's a, a key moment to come right now. Yeah, that's right. Uh, so it's 15, 12. Uh, when that try goes in. Doolan, by the way, described by Channel 10 as 23-year-old public servant. Um, public servant? Do we know what servant. department? No, unfortunately, I don't know what department. I'd love to find out. Um, well, you will. You'll, you know people. Can yeah, you... yeah, that's right. I'll, 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 uh, my people will talk to someone. Um, but this is a key moment in the match. So it's, they're, they're three points behind. And for all, like, Taylor hits some worldies, but this, for me, is the kick of the match because... Mm. He's right on the touchline, and he, Jonathan Davies, and he thumps this. I just wrote yep. in capitals, glorious kick. It's over the like it. I don't even know how the touch. He's decided that it went over because it's so high that it's well above the posts. Like it, mm. if like if that if that had been at Leichhardt, there was a plane going overhead. It would have like bumped under the you know onto one of the wings or something. Uh, he he just clatters this over. Um, and it, it it's it, it puts them one behind and puts them right in it with about seven minutes to go. Oh, absolutely. You're right. Like, I actually wondered the same thing, stupidly, was that they're kicking them so high that if it went, like, if it nominally would have hit the post, I'm not sure how you would tell whether it went in or not. Yeah. Um, and But, yeah, look, it, there's something about these kicks because, I mean, technically, if he does, like, it opens up the field goal and all that, so it is important. But technically, they could win either way. But there's yeah. something about when you do a moment like that, there's a, a big kick from the sideline when you nail it and you're coming for the other team. It puts momentum and an exclamation mark on it. It really... Yeah can signal you're coming and to have this guy just go bang with this absolute cannon of a boot turn you know you don't even need to watch it he's hit it that well and turn around is a really big moment in the game and and you know with terry lamb and the side they've got the field goal is very important as well you know like the fact that they can yeah. kick one to keep the game going and i mean in fairness terry lamb might still have looked at the field goal at three behind true true <laughs> yeah they can't rule that out now a mark of terry lamb here with five to go he produces what i think is the in-play kick of the game it's yep. it's not a it's not a particular it doesn't amount to anything but it's just a they are on about their own forty they've they've rucked the ball up they they've just scored they were a point behind they're coming for West they don't really do much with the ball off the kickoff but from his own forty he just produces this kick that lands about two meters out from the in goal and bounces into the in goal. Uh, and the West Winger has to bring it out and is pinned two metres out from his own line. And when they're not really, they didn't make any impact off that set, he gives them the perfect opportunity to put pressure on Wests and gives West the perfect opportunity to turn the ball over in front of the posts. You know, like he, he could not have done any more with that kick to give Canterbury a chance to pinch the game. It's a, it's a no, great, absolutely. great example of, of a great player when it really counted, just producing a bit of play. Yeah, it's really important because a lot of people at that point of the game, you zing the ball around and you try and score, but you, he gives them more chance. They have their set and their go, and then he does this kick, which gives them another chance. You're one error away from winning this game. You force that error, you'll score and win most likely. Um, yep. I know you've still got to score it, but that's it's turning 
your set of six, uh, too many players, I'm not going to name people, you know, but we've watched a few play for us recently where they won't try and change momentum. You have your five goes, you dink it in the air and give it back to them. And then you, it's our turn to tackle where he is trying to turn. He is trying yeah. to give them the ball in a spot that they can be aggressive with their defense, force an error to win. And I'd love to know how many times in his career they won because they did force that error at that yeah. last minute. Then West don't give it up here. Um, and you're right. It is a key kick, but it's also nothing new. He's done that three times in the game. Like there's three, three times already. He either, I don't think he actually gets a drop out out of any, but they, they pin them. They get to the end of the end goal and they've got to bring it out. And he starts to set a meter out from the try line where the Bulldogs have mm. done nothing. And he goes, right out, boom. And he's the first or second guy to chase it too. Yeah. Um, and, and, and he pins him there. It's a fascinating career. He really is. It, he, he mm. from my understanding, I need to look into it more, but he basically didn't want to play rep football and stood down for it for much of his career. So he's got this quite small rep career to, compared to how good he was. Um, but, you know, he, he won comp after competition over multiple errors and was competing with your, your Kennys and Lewis's and all these guys, but just didn't want to play rep footy, which is... um might have just like made it hard harder to hold him up with those guys mm, but that's an amazing 300, career 350 games 164 tries kicked a lot of goals you know not every year to year but a lot of goals over time won a lot of competitions he's a one of the most bizarre shapes i've ever seen as an elite playmaker like, <laughs> yeah. it's so funny like, he yeah. doesn't look anything like uh, as i understand it he didn't like training so he played better when he didn't train too much which is again <laughs> like it's just a he's a real throwback and he he has got rugby league brains that few people have yeah. had since that time that it's not he's the craftiness and where to be and they talk about him as the backup king players who back up a lot and you see it with your nathan blacklocks like they score tries where you go oh he was just there but they're always just there it's that yeah, sense they the see because they know where the ball's going to be yeah, yeah. That, that's right best, that's right he, mm. yeah the best backer up in in rugby league now i think is david cherry evans um, and and it's the same thing where he just he just looms up on the right of someone who's made a break, you know. Um, yeah, and he and it's a similar kind of thing. We go, hang on, what, he scored again, you know. He scores so many tries, but by being off the hip of the bloke who's made a break, um, and yeah. yet and and Terry Lamb seems to have he was he was even better at that. He scored so many tries that way, and I really enjoyed watching him. I was glad that he, glad to get a to get a game where he he played and where he was a significant part of it. Um, it won't so, be the last. We'll be looking. I think we definitely need to cover those mid nineties Bulldogs. Are a little yeah, absolutely. In our arsenal. So we'll be looking yep. at his. Um, he was the real senior figure and linchpin of those teams, and we'll definitely yeah. be getting to some games there over time. Yeah, we've got to watch the ninety five grand final at some point for one thing. Um, but that's mm-hmm. right. So with five minutes to go, it's fifteen fourteen, and they pin them. But West don't drop the ball. Then they get a penalty. Mm-hmm. Uh, sorry, they don't drop the ball. They get it. They they're in a bit of trouble and Taylor responds like this is the real championship rounds of good players really reacting here. Mm. Taylor lands it on the 30 from about his own 20 and the dogs drop the ball. They're the ones that blink and it's a penalty to West and West this time don't take the kick for goal. They decide to chew time down. They bang it into touch. And from five meters out late in the count, there's a beautiful grubber to the wing from Taylor and uh, the winger for the, for the Magpies, Wayne Simons lands on the ball, scores, and it's 1914, and West look like they've wrapped it up. Uh, Simons, by the way, uh, described as 25, fitter machinist, uh, and also uh, went on to play for both the South Queensland Crushers and the Adelaide Rams later Ooh, in his that's career. A run. So that's a career. Yeah. Magpies, Rams, Crushers. Um, it's pretty good going. Can he play for anyone that is still around? Are they the only uh, three? 
No, I think they might be the only three. Hang on. He might have played. In just one second. I'll find that out for you. Uh, no, he played for Parramatta in 94. Unfortunately, a rare blemish on his yeah. record. Yeah. yeah. It is a shame. I like players that can't go to a reunion. Like, <laughs> <laughs> there isn't anything there. Yeah, that's true. So, I talk in jest. I'm sure West have reunions. I apologise to Magpies fans. I'm only joking. Yes. <laughs> Before I get to hate mail in. <laughs> yeah, you're in trouble, mate. Yeah. Um, yeah, I do so, apologise. So Taylor has a kick here to clinch it with about a minute and a half to go and bangs it. And it looks like it's going over and clatters dramatically into the post. And that means that Canterbury are still a chance. They take the short kick off, but West catch it. Uh, They, Simon Gillies, uh, sorry, Graham Wynn stays down. Simon Gillies picks him up by the shoulders and throws him onto the ground. But Canterbury, because of that miss from Taylor, are still in the game and they get one last chance with about 40 seconds to go. And from 25 out, Scott Tronk makes a run, goes to the line and finds this superb little short offload to Doolan, who breaks into the clear. And for just a second, you think, hang on, this is on here. And the crowd are going absolutely bananas. And he's got the fullback to beat. And the fullback, Sean Devine, gets him around the legs and tackles him and snuffs it out. And with about 20 seconds to go, or not even that much, Lamb gets the ball out wide and bol- kind of gets tackled and bobbles this pass, which goes three metres forward. West touch it and Canterbury gets six to go. Did you notice this? Like that, it's blatantly yeah. forward. Another and, bad call from Bill in the game, yep. Yeah. And on the siren, now this is the drama that ends the match. There is so much drama in the game and it's, it finishes with drama because Canterbury are playing the ball on the right-hand side of the field. And all of a sudden, the crowd starts celebrating. Mm. Now, I assume what happened is that the clock had run down. Yep. But there's no siren. So can well, it's, it's, hard, it's hard to hear. I, I can't tell whether there was. I, the sound wasn't great. I couldn't tell whether there was one or there wasn't. Do you reckon there wasn't at all? I don't think there was a siren because I, I heard right. it in the first half and it was pretty mm. raucous. So okay. Canterbury play on. They don't know that time's up and some of the West players don't know that time's up. And they go wide, and Jonathan Davies makes a break. Yeah. And he's heading for the line, and the fullback grasses him, and he gets up to go again. And everybody realises that Bill has, in fact, looked. he's turned around, looked at the clock, and blown time off. And it won't count, and they have to go back. And it's a kind of – it's a final bit of uh, tension and – Theatre. And theatre and incident in this wonderful yep. game. Um and it means that West's 19 beat Canterbury 14 and go through to play Canberra next week. Fantastic game. Absolutely outstanding. I'm really glad we watched that. It was an excellent game. And, you know, um, there's still a bit of joy to come under Tommy, but this is one of the last really great days for the Magpies as well. You know, if you're yeah. a betting yep. Magpies fan and, and rather than a West Tigers fan, and there's plenty of those out there, this is one of the last really great, you know, big games you will remember. It's not the last, but it, it, it's up there, and it's certainly one of the greatest ones in the last sort of twenty years of them them playing. And it's um, it's what the game's about. I think a, a lot of ways is that the teams of, I don't denigrate the new teams or anything at all, but the, the fans of the really old teams and people that have followed them forever and that used to live near the ground and walk over to it and the, all this sort of stuff. And yep. you get your day out, and 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 a, you know you have a really good win, and when you haven't been going so well and everything, it's always been what what I find really wonderful and enjoyable 
about rugby league. Uh, I love going to Sydney games and seeing the old Sydney teams. Even now that it's the West Tigers going to those games, you get those really mm. great sort of fans and people there. And, and it's um, I so I just thought it was fantastic it's to, to get that sort of win and what it would have meant to them at that time. Yep, absolutely right. They, they uh, I really enjoyed it. I, I got a real fondness for the Maggies, and uh, it was good. It was wonderful to see them having a big day and knocking off one of the big sides like Canterbury, one of these kind of grandee clubs of Sydney, one of the biggest teams of the 80s, mm. and, and West get them on the day and, and get their get themselves into the finals. Um, they, they went on to lose, perhaps predictably, to the Raiders 22-8 the following Saturday, uh, having played twice in four days. That was probably to be expected. Uh, they were 12-6 down at half time, and the Raiders went away with it a bit. Um, the Maggies then made the yeah. finals again in – they. they Got into fifth and uh, and made the semis again in 1992. Um, so it, it wasn't a fluke. They got in again and lost uh, in the first week of the finals again to uh, Newcastle. Actually, 21-2 at the SFS. So it was two years in a row that they managed to get into the into the semis. And after and things really fell apart after that for the Wocks. They came 13th the next year, and he was sacked in the middle of 1994. But they only went on after those two years of the walk. They only made the finals once more in '96 under Tommy. So this was a this was in the in the late history of West. This was a very good period. For this these two two or three years were a very good period for them. Yeah, and look, that, that's that's probably um, to put a really sort of just critical football view on it. I think having watched that game. Um, I imagine that they would have really tried to go if they tried the approach they took with Canterbury to Canberra. Canberra were just going to have too much strike. Um, yeah, you know, like the, they were going to struggle to grind away at a side like that and come out on. I know they beat them that year, you said, but I think in a big game there'd be the sense that Canberra were just going to have a bit too much, and that's you know they were cheating, so that's not yeah. that surprising. But yeah. it's just that, that that if there was a hold back in that side, I think the walk did a great job of taking a roster that sort of hadn't done anything, got a really good young halfback added some tough grinders and really built a model that could put a floor under them where they could play really tough, good football and dominate possession and field position. But, you know, um, against yeah. a time like the Raiders, they might've just been a bit short of complete strike to, to really get over the top of them. Yep. Yep. Because I, I think, think if, if you swap right. the halves, if, if you swap the halves in this game, and I, you wouldn't want to swap Jason Taylor, but if you put Lamb and Ewan McGrady into West in this game, I would have thought they would have scored three or four more tries just with the strike out at fullback and in the like. They just oh, yeah. Yeah. Taylor was great, but there wasn't pace and strike around the game um, for them, and that probably I, I reckon they would have won comfortably if you swap those two in. Yeah, I think that's probably right. Um, And that might be a good time for you to talk about the players that they could have had and the players that, in fairness, that the kind of catchment of Western Suburbs produced during this era. Mm. Yeah, that's right. So what I wanted to look at is that I, this is something that I found out just by being a bit of a rugby league nuff over time when I, I, I often, when I talk about a player, I end up Googling them and you, you know, going to Wikipedia and you see some stuff. And it just occurred to me how many times I see Western suburbs come up on a player that I don't associate with Western suburbs, yeah. um, a good player. And so what I want to do is I think I'll talk about my thoughts at the end, but basically what I'm looking at here is I think that West are considered, you know, um, with the greatest respect to be a pretty poor club in the nineties. When you think about it and you think yep. of them as having had no players and going no good, is that mm. fair enough? Um, no yeah, one of course. thinks of them, you know, and, and I think 
what I want to show is that this wasn't necessarily inevitable and that they had a lot of good players come through their system and for a variety of reasons, which we can speculate about later, it just didn't work out. But Mm. what I'll do here for you is I'm going to give you a a two separate lists, which is a list of everyone that I, that played representative football that debuted at Western suburbs. Mm -hmm. Um, And then a list of players. Yeah. From 90 to 96. Yep. Um, and, and I'm going to then give you a list of players that had played somewhere else in Sydney, but they recruited in that were, um, you know, that would have played in the same period. And um, before I do that, the only thing I'm going to add is, is I'm going to add the obvious is he obviously didn't debut in uh, 90 to 96, but Terry Lamb played until 95, 96 and debuted at, at the Western Suburbs Magpies. And I think we need to throw him in with the yep. next gen because he was still playing. Um, yeah, of course. So to start off with, they could have had Terry Lamb um, for yep. his whole career. Um, and under that, I'm going to give you some names. So we've got Graham Mackay, played for Australia. Ah, yes. Um, debuted at the Western Suburbs Magpies. Uh, Darren Britt, played for Australia, debuted at the Magpies. Jason Taylor, uh, Jamie Ainge-Co, Noel Goldthorpe, Jim Dimmick, Steve Kearney, and Glenn Grief. Oh, all yeah. Between Jim, all, yeah. Jim Dimmick, Jim Dimmick and Steve Kearney's pretty good going, yeah. Uh, yeah, uh, well, yeah, uh, on that list, players that played, we got Mackay played for Australia, Britt played for Australia, um, so did Angeco, so did Dimmick, Kearney played for New Zealand, then you got Grief played for City, Goldthorpe played for New South Wales at um, Super League level, Jason Taylor played Origin, um, and that's a pretty outstanding list. Um, when you then go into players that they brought in, and young or old, young-wise, they brought in Terry Hill and Jim Sedaris, who both played for Australia. And Terry Hill's one of the best players in his position yep. of the 90s. Yep. Um, and they, they brought in two old heads in Gillespie and Langmack. Um, so I suppose what I want to put to you is a team that Wes could feasibly have run out in 1996 or 95, okay. 96. Yep. Now they could have run with Leeds at fullback, who they had anyway. Uh-huh. Um, they could have then had Angeco, Hill, McGuinness, McInnes as a back one. Yep. Uh, they then would have had Lamb and Taylor in the halves with a front row of Gillespie and Britt, Sedaris at hooker with Carney, Langmack and Dimmick as your, as your back row with John Scandalis and Glenn Grief on the bench. And if you retire Terry Lamb at the end of his career, then they then shift Jim Dimmick into play of the halves with Jason Taylor, which is, can I just say, it's sort of a yin-yang. It's just about yeah. perfect because they're both good at what the other one's not. <laughs> yep. But I, I guess to put that, well, the reason I, I suppose I want to put this is because this is a time in the game where I think the game became very commercialised and, and I guess money became the predominant thing in, in the sport and, 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 and surviving with money and having the money to buy players became everything. And the Sydney clubs were left by not really, it's easy to say they did nothing to save themselves, but it, they were in a position where they couldn't possibly all go well. Like it was never a position where all of them could survive and go well at that yeah. time with the way the game was looking and the way it was about money and with Canberra and Brisbane coming through. So you've got this sense where it's quite sad because the forces that ended West to me don't have much to do with football. It's all about dollars and cents. There's no sense. It's easy to say West were hopeless and had these terrible sides at different times in that era, but they, a debuted a stack 
of good rugby league players. Yep. You know, Liam, Mackay, Britt, Taylor, Angeco, Goldthorpe, Dimmick, Cunt. Like, these are fantastic. And I, I, I'm not going to get an argument. Some of those may not have come from their junior system, but they debuted them. So they identified them as kids and brought them in um, to play. They ident- then I would argue with you they identified the right players to bring in. They brought in Hill and Sedaris, two young, talented players that go on to play for their country, and brought in a couple of old heads like Gillespie and Langmack. And what happens there is they don't keep them because of money, because of the way the game was at. Terry Lamb left because they kept asking him to play for free every year because they didn't have any money and were running out. And eventually he was like, well, I don't want to, which is understandable. Yeah. Um, and, and, and these later guys, money was in the game. They, they could have kept all those players. It's not a sense of a salary cap situation. Manly ran out a team as good as the one I just read out yeah. for, for Wes. But Wes got they identified the juniors and the young guys they should have wanted to have in their team and debuted them and got them through their system and couldn't keep them and they identified guys they wanted to bring in like Hill and Sedaris but couldn't keep them and that I suppose it just I think it's one of those things that like I don't know how overly to say it other than to say that this isn't football related this is it's just the sport went to a position where clubs like this couldn't all survive but it's cheap and short-sighted to act like they were some sort of basket case. They were doing no. the football things that they should have done, and everyone was trying to do their best. But but money is money, and they just that it it, it was we're in a position where you couldn't have all the Sydney teams keep doing what they were doing and survive. You know. Well, I think what you're saying is that you know that the, there was never a time where West weren't producing good footballers, and where West didn't didn't have a kind of uh, didn't have a production line of good players. They just couldn't keep them because of the money in the game. They just didn't have the money to keep them playing at Wests. No. And if you want an example of that, the person who most people cite as the best player in the game now mm. is from Macarthur. He's a product yeah. of the. He's a product of. He's a product of the Western suburbs, like Catchman, yeah. James Tedesco. Yeah. You know, like it, the, yeah. that area never stopped producing good footballers. But the the the, the, the commerce of the game meant that they could that they couldn't stay and play for Wests. Yeah, that's exactly right. I think, yeah, you summed it up better than me, I suppose. But that, that you're right. What, what I guess the, the element to add to that is, is that they couldn't. Is that it's not only that they didn't have the money. If they had have had the money to keep these sides, someone else would have been West in Sydney. Someone else would have been born yeah. and and fallen apart. Is that if they had Manly's money, they would have could have been Manly. They that that team there is good enough to have been the power side of the mid nineties. But then someone else in Sydney would have been a basket case and losing all their games and West would have been pinching all their juniors. Like if they had money, someone else in Sydney would have lost all their kids to West and yeah. West would have won everything. And that team would go, it was a situation where the game had made its priorities rightly or wrongly. And they'd commercialized the game and it was, you know, you've got to make money to survive and you've got to compete with Brisbane and Canberra and they've got all these money to get players. And, you know, some of the Sydney clubs are going to find some money to chase your players. And we're all going to cannibalize each other because there's a lot of teams in here in a short space and, it wasn't designed to work financially like that. It was designed to be an amateur competition in 1908 and to just play for your suburb. And now you've got to try and survive. And if it wasn't them, it would have been someone else. And it just unfortunately was them, I suppose. And I don't think they did any better or worse than anyone else, but I just don't like the concept that West were hopeless or a basket case or anything else because they were producing the, always producing the rugby league players to do it. And they were stuck in a position that I challenge you to tell me who would have, got them 
out of it. And if they did get them out of it, it just would have ended Parramatta or ended the Roosters. Like yeah. Someone else would have been West. There's no way yeah. where they all survived and got out of this. Yeah, there wasn't enough game. to, once the, yeah. yeah, there wasn't enough to go around. And that's, yeah. Yeah, you're absolutely right. And I'm glad that you brought that up because, yeah, that that, you, that side you run through is a very good team that would have been uh, very competitive in the 90s and would have been very strong and potentially would have won things. Um, so they could have started um, a whole side of people that played Origin or for Australia could have played and they could have done that almost exclusively by keeping people who debuted from them. You still could have had eight, nine, ten guys that played for New South Wales, yep. New Zealand or Australia without even recruiting. Yeah, 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 yeah. Mm. Um, just, just, just keeping what you had. Never mind going out and getting anyone else from anywhere else. Mm. Uh, yeah. Well, thank you for thank you for going through that. that I mean, we, yeah, you're right. There is a bit of a sneering towards the Maggies that oh, well, they were a basket case. They're always going to go, and it's it is. It's unfair. Um, yeah, it, it's it's unfair. They did all the rugby league things they could do right. They were getting the right. They had the right kids coming through. They debuted the right kids who went on to be good players. They recruited relatively well and just couldn't hold on to anything because you're talking about a club that, you know, Tommy Radonikus built the gym like for 500 bucks himself yeah. in the mid nineties, you know, with, with spare change while the Broncos were turning over $50 million a year. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's, it's just, there's two it's different, it was yeah. just, suddenly it was two yeah. different sports and two different levels. Yeah. Yeah, exactly well, thank you, right. Gazzy. This has been a most enjoyable game. I've got to say, I'm really glad we watched this. I, this is this this early '90s period is a great era for the game, and, and there's some wonderful players that we don't know a lot about, but kind of have heard good things about. And uh, yeah, so I'm glad that we were able to watch that. And I hope that I hope that Maggie's fans out there got something out of it as well. Um, remembering, I hope they you know enjoyed remembering this game from 1991. Uh, any, any last thoughts, Gazzy? No, it's fantastic. Uh, anyone who hasn't seen Ewan McGrady play, this game's on YouTube. Go and watch it. And if you don't want to watch a full game, just go and find some YouTube highlights of Ewan McGrady because it's absolutely fantastic. And we can't wait to do our Bring Out Your Dead on him soon. Yeah, and we'll get that out. Uh, we'll get that out over the next, you know, over the next week or so. And we'll have a good yarn about Ewan McGrady because he deserves to be his uh, his story deserves to be talked about as well. Uh, until next time from the Rugby League Cemetery, we're signing off.